Alright, stop. Whatever you're doing, TJ's back, the airwaves were chewing, rocking. A G.I. Joe podcast, interview special, questions will be asked. Will it ever stop, yo? I don't think so, not as long as someone's publishing Joe. Artists, writers, G.I. Joe fanboys, let's get this thing started and hope we don't annoy our guest in the studio right now. They've come in for a chat discussing when, where and how. Probing, we're going in deep. Anything left, we might as well be asleep. Questioning them about the G.I. Joe history. Unwrapping answers like a whodunit mystery. T.J. Interview. T.J. Interview. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the uh, the biggest and longest and best dedicated comic podcast that I present. If you're new to the show, you can find out all of the details at the website talkingjoe.co.uk. But today we are talking G.I. Joe Disavowed, the Devil's Due Run, and doing it in a big way with a very special guest. As usual, I am joined by my co-hosts. It's a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark. Uh, hello, listeners, and uh, hello to our guest, uh, who Mark's going to reveal in a moment. I am so excited to <laughs> chat and ask questions. And also, it's GIJ Jay Cordray. Hello, Mark, Tim, hello. fellow GI Joe enthusiasts, and our mystery guest to be revealed <laughs> now. And if you haven't read the name of the podcast title, uh, then you will be surprised <laughs> to hear that our very special guest is none other than Josh Blaylock, founder and publisher of Devil's Due Comics, writer of G.I. Joe's issues 1 to 25 from the Devil's Due run, and the 2003 G.I. Joe vs. Transformers crossover, and the Dreadnoughts declassified mini, and the Arashikage showdown one-shot. And beyond the world of G.I. Joe, Josh has been involved in the creation of many more comics, including, but not limited to, Mercy Sparks, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Freshman Force, Barak the Barbarian, the Bitcoin comic handbook, how to self-publish comics, and other recent projects, including Arcworld and the Encoded. Josh is also the Chief Creative and Executive Officer of Pop Cultivator. Welcome, Josh. Hello, hello. Hello. It's great to, great to have you on, and we're very enthused because we have been uh, talking uh, Devil's Due comics uh, for a number of months and, and reading them and uh, poring over all of the details. So it's uh, yeah, great to, to have you on and to you know, get your insight from the, the, the area. It's almost 20 years on. How, how does it feel looking back <laughs> at that time now? <laughs> uh it that was all a whirlwind man it was um you know super grateful for it and it's it's weird it's um it's not as hard to believe that it was 20 years ago as it is to wrap my head around like that we have now i have now not touched the property like twice as long as it was since marvel stopped it and we picked it up <laughs> like the gap mm. um and that and that it's you know that 80s retro is still going um which when we kicked that off in 2001 i never expected it would still be this phenomenon like it is now um so yeah it's it's wild and and does it does it you know still is it still kind of feel like it was almost 
yesterday or does it feel you know because a day in the office for for me i can't remember what i did last week never mind what i was doing this time 20 years ago um you know how does how does that that feel because you know people are gonna people are gonna be coming up to you every time you're having an appearance bringing out these 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 comics from um 20 20 years ago given you know the importance to to them you know i'll i'll, I'll read a it's funny, I remember like making the books and remember like what you know, traveling around to conventions and events and things. But some the hardest thing to remember sometimes is I'll go back to read the story, like I did I write this? <laughs> and then and then um and then it comes back to you and you're like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's fun. You know, you have to get that far away from it before you can actually read and read it from mm -hmm. a perspective of some like fresh eyes, you know. Is there a part of you, Josh, that, that still kind of has to pinch yourself sometimes and say I got to write G.I. Joe. How cool is that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like that's when, you know, when you're just doing a little bit of introspective gratification. I mean, you know, how the hell did, you know, I end up with that? You know, like <laughs> it's always like no matter how hard you try. At 22. Yeah. The I mean, now what the, the part of the story people don't know is I was obsessively serious about trying to become a professional comic book person since I was like 14. And then I published mm -hmm. for, uh, 1996 up through 2000 and everything. I'd been publishing nationally, you know, kind of unknown, um, before that. So that is there. It's the, it's the adage of, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Um, but I mean, still, I mean, the chances that that I actually scored this huge property um, as basically a kid—that's um, mm. that's insane. Who does that? <laughs> that that yeah. like that? I mean, that's some serious like universe luck there. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Was it a sense of like no fear at the time? Was it as just a, a self belief and just putting yourself out out there, or is is kind of looking back on it and what you achieved? very different to kind of what you were, what was going on in in your mind at, at the at the time at you know we're we're quite sim similar ages um i i was yes would have been a similar age to to, to you at the um, you know in my very early 20s when when the De uh, devil's Jew book was first coming out and sort of making my way in you know in my first uh paid employment and that kind of, of thing and you know there was just no way that I would have even dreamt of that I could have achieved something uh, like that, uh, you know, on my young young shoulders. Yeah, how how did it feel for for you at the the time? I definitely, I had zero doubt in my mind that that was going to be hugely successful, and it was a matter of like, how do I get this done? Um, like, I'm I definitely am wired where I I what for whatever I'm just lacking the gene of like being afraid to risk everything to try something like that um right probably to to a fault um but um i don't know i guess i'm kind of zen and like stoic when it comes to like what i'm like what's the worst gonna happen i'm gonna lose everything and not you know as long as i'm not gonna die <laughs> you know, i'm i'm and i got family and stuff i'm fine um but uh but like that said you know and, and it was also like the alternative was doing something else that I would be miserable doing, which was, would be like not working in comics. I mean, I was just, that was the only mm. thing I wanted to do at the time. Um, and, uh, but what really motivated me with GI Joe was the fact that I couldn't believe how crazy people were in my head that, that they didn't understand how big this would be. So it was more with me, mm. like, 
it wasn't even about me. It was like, are you out of your mind? You don't think this is going to work? Like, do you have any idea how badly people want this to come back be, and be brought back the right way? Um, you know, do you know how many times my friends of I and I have just sat around, like, you know, bullshitting about, like, oh, man, I really wish they'd bring this back and make it all badass and stuff, you know? So, and, and it wasn't like I didn't have any little, like, proof of concepts either. I guess it probably helps to go through a timeline a little bit, you know? In high school, you know... I would just make, I was always like making t-shirts and stuff and like selling them as like a little side hustle. I was, you know, known as like the guy in high school that could draw. And I had read, I had redone our school mascot, which had, okay. hadn't been touched in like 30 years or something. So it was the Oak Hills Highlanders. So it was an excuse to draw a big barbarian dude. <laughs> um, but then we, we, um, I made these like little Autobot magnets, you know, and, and, uh, mm -hmm. got them. I wanted one for my own car. And then, but I like instantly would sell out of them. So it was like, oh man, you know, that was fun. And then, um, cause I had to make a bunch in order to just get myself a few. Um, you couldn't just make like two, but then, um, started getting my feet wet, self-publishing, like, uh, I was 18 doing my own black and white comics, getting them distributed, going to conventions, like whatever conventions there were at the time. And, uh, uh, I did kind of sabotage going to a proper arts, like a, a formal art school, um, and getting on any kind of art degree. Cause I, I really, I went to a really like hard grinding, like go there every day, camp type of commercial art school, um, and to learn about graphic design and advertising and all that, just waiting the clock ticking, waiting to be able to get out there and be an adult and make comics. So anyway, I, I stumbled into this job after a few false starts that was, a t-shirt licensing company and they were just doing like goofy like sayings on your shirts like drink your beer mm -hmm. there's sober kids in india and you know goofy <laughs> crap like that um and 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 a lot of hippie stuff lots of like tie-dye and kind of grateful dead stickers and things like that and then um they wanted to do like some kind of 80s retro thing and they started bringing up all these sports things that i didn't know anything about and, and i just said man you guys got to do like transformers and gi joe and, and they're like you know i showed them an Autobots or Decepticon symbol and Cobra symbol. And if you don't know what a Decepticon symbol is and you've never seen it before, it kind of looks like, like weird tribal art tattoos or something. And, mm -hmm. and they just lack kind of laughed at me. And I, I argued with, it was like me, the two bosses that owned the company and one secretary was the whole company. And I argued with them about, I was like, no, you've got to do this. And they had some ins with like hot topic. It was a big retail store here in the States uh, and uh, another one at the time called Gadzooks and some others. They they said all these buyers said no, and the thing was that nobody wanted this thing from the '80s. They were like, why would why would anybody buy this old stuff? And that was the first time where I actually got angry and kind of like snapped at my boss. I was like, I was like, you call that buyer back right now and you tell her to show that to any dude in the office who's 20 to 25 years old and tell me they don't want that. I don't know what came out of me, like, you know, but um, that just kind of rolled out of my mouth. And he did it, and they called back, and they ordered 2,000 units um, of mm -hmm. these, like, Transformer stickers. Well, the problem was it wasn't licensed yet. So um, my my boss, or one of them, they, they started talking to Hasbro Legal and everything, and they couldn't um, even get Hasbro... Uh, legal to write a contract for it they hasbro was confused why they wanted 
1980s versions of Transformers. They they were like, why why would no? We were doing Beast Machines, um, we're doing Beast or Beast Wars, you know, we're doing that. And he's like, no, 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 we want the old classic like 1984 Optimus Prime. And they're like, oh, no, we're not licensing that. <laughs> like, so, dude hangs up the phone and just goes, well, we'll just bootleg it. And um, <laughs> well, they underestimated how popular it was going to be. And fast forward about I don't know six months, and we've got a line called Old School through every mall in North America. You know, at least in the at least in America. Um, I mean, selling there's like hundreds of thousands of dollars of shirts of Transformers, GI Joe, He Man, Thundercats. I mean, everything, and and on and all like My Little Pony and Rainbow Bright, and I mean. We brought the 80s stuff into the retail market for the first time ever, and most of it was bootleg. Uh, they that I was just an employee, <laughs> but they were cranking this stuff out. I was just happy to have this job, you know, basically creating this line and drawing this stuff. And they did so, but they got we got the Voltron license, we got the TMNT license, we got uh, so they started getting all these real licenses, and mm-hmm. I learned how to do licensing that way. And then they'd just be like. Hey, uh, you ever been to Vegas? I'm like, no. And they're like, all right, well, we got a trade show there. You got to put the booth together. <laughs> so I really got a crash course in setting up a professional nice. trade show. So I'm like, that's how when I'm like 21 I, or, you know, 22, I've got that experience uh, that was just a weird batch. Plus, you know, still self-publishing and, and going to every convention I could in my like $400 car, you know, every other weekend. Um so then it started you know, I had a good amount of freelance work on the side too, getting paid and it was a fantastic job. Um, and then Hasbro came, we were at New York comic con. I mean, not New York comic con. There was New York. Comic. We were at the New York boutique show. I think it's called. It's a, it's a, a it's a apparel fashion trade show. Um, so I'm in this, Actually, that here's really weird serendipity. That's where I first sketched up the Devil's Due logo while I was bored at the booth. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking of like, oh, this would be a cool T-shirt line called Devil's Due, and it'd be like kind of like punk, punk rock, kind of like. But it would, it doesn't really mean anything. It could also be, you know, uh, the name of uh, a studio. It could be the name of a band. It could be the name of, you know, just Devil's Due sounds like a cool name. And um, then. Um, in the hotel later, they got a call from the uh, the secretary that they got a, a cease and desist letter from Hasbro, like a serious one about everything. <laughs> so someone else who already had a relationship with Hasbro had come in and they saw that, like, hey, why, why is all this stuff selling? Hey, Hasbro. And they just went and gave Hasbro a check and said, hey, we're, we, we do shirts with you guys. Now we, and they had a track record to show, like, when, when my bosses went to Hasbro... They were like, what the hell is this stuff? When this company went to Hasbro, they were like, look how much this stuff is selling. Uh, it's super popular. We'll give you a check. So kind of like, I guess that's like end chapter one or whatever, or the prologue. I had seen that my thoughts were validated. You know, the we were, you're talking about probably a million dollars worth of shirts sold at the time. Um, and the... Um, and so two years are going by and I mean, I, it's wild, you know, cause I'm get to go travel to, I'm going to a comic con in another state and I'm like, Oh my God, people are wearing our shirts all over the place. They're in every mall. This is so amazing. 
and, and I know all those people have been coming into comic book shops, you know? I mean, that's the mark. That's the crowd, you know? So uh, a couple years later go by. Um, I, I left that job. It was an awesome job, but I was just so obsessed with wanting to do comics. I was just miserable, not, you know, just working the day job. And I had enough freelance. I decided to leave. Um, this was all in Cincinnati, Ohio, by the way. I decided to leave the job, start Devil's Do, like, Devil's Do as a studio, um, and then, you know, I thought, all right, I'm going to probably spend the next, another five years making comics and building my name up, and finally, uh, if I don't hit it big, one of my friends will hit it big, and then we'll all come up together at some, you know, somehow, and, mm. and that was the plan, and I said, you know what, I'm going to, I know how to do the licensing offers now, I'm going to try to get, I've got to try to get one of these 80s things that I love, and it's like, okay, let's try, we had sent this, like, amazing uh, licensing package to Hasbro. Uh, I went out and bought a full size like ammo um, uh, container. I, <laughs> shame on me for forgetting the name of those because I'm uh, I'm gonna offend all the military people. Um, you know, but like unlock the metal. We put like file folders in there and all the and you. It was like super badass. Um, and then um, the uh, now I know why we didn't. Nobody cared to Hasbro because they didn't even know who those characters were, you know, at the time. So mm. they just got this thing like, "What the hell's this?" And, and uh, <laughs> I, I, but I emailed Hasbro, uh, which this sounds so weird because it's so long ago and how fast things have changed. Like, just to send an email blindly back then was like kind of like a new thing, you know, like you weren't having a formal meeting or anything. And I, uh, yeah. I said I was interested in G.I. Joe, and, you know, and to my shock, I got a response, and I started going back and forth, and next thing I know, I had a, I had a deal accepted. I had to give them, like, $15,000 up front against a $30,000 guarantee, and it was a ridiculous, ridiculous 15% royalty, which is absurd. That's 50% higher than any standard royalty in, in like, that kind of licensing. Um, and I, so I said, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, um, I, then I was like, okay, I really wasn't happy in Cincinnati and I wanted to move to Chicago and I was like, okay, this is, there's no way in hell this is going to happen. But if it does, I'm going to have to set up roots and build a company and stuff. And, uh, I, so I just, I, I had a job lined up for an animation studio, uh, from a friend of mine and, you know, it paid like 15 bucks an hour to like, just do like grunt work and, I said, okay, cool. That's all I need and moved here. And then like, I don't know, like two months later, they laid everybody off. It was part of the George Bush, no child left behind, uh, like funding. And then like, which actually never got funded really. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they laid everybody off and except for a handful of people. And so I was like, okay, I get the GI Joe contract. Like it's actually happening. And then I got laid off. So I was like, okay, this is insane. I've got to come up with the money. And I've got to like work these temp jobs and not let Hasbro know that I'm working these temp jobs and that I'm not a real full full on company. So uh, yeah, but uh, it happened. And had you had you met them in person by 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 this point? It can't nope. surely have been all by email. not at all. Which was wow. uh, very weird back in you know back in <laughs> 2001. Wow. That was highly unusual. Um, not like it is now. Um, and now it's. Did you have? I mean, you know, you did you, you had back then. You had to like still pay to get your phone system set up at the office i mean it was it was considered like unprofessional to only do business on a cell phone 
Um, Did you have an entertainment lawyer when you were talking with Hasbro, or was it just you? Just me. Um, I, you know, I had like, I had read a lot of contracts since I was like 16 because I, I had offers from publishers in the early 90s when I was a terrible artist, but there were also a lot of terrible publishers, and they, <laughs> they, um, I, you know, I got really fortunate with this school that I, this high school that I went to. I guess shout outs to Oak Hill School District was as damn near close to a high-end private school as you could get in a in a public school situation. Um, I got, and which is great because I lived in Florida before that, and all the schools were just terrible. Um, and I was just trying not to get beat up. But then, um, yeah, I, I mean, I had a, a very forward-thinking graphic design teacher who we literally learned how to do setup on this program back in the day called Quark Express. And then we made our own, uh, uh, we developed our own prints and then we put them on the printing press and printed. I mean, we learned everything. That guy was amazing. And then Mr. Ramsey's. And then uh, there was this other, um, there was a, uh, the, the gym coach had a business. There was an elective for like a third of the year where you could do a business class. And they taught like some business fundamentals. And so I was the only kid where I was like, oh, hey, by the way, uh, hey, teacher, you know, can you look at this contract I got from this publisher? <laughs> I think it's garbage, and I tried to rewrite it. Can you take a look at it? And you know, and he's just like, "Who does this?" Um, but um, <laughs> that was my best thing I had for a lawyer <laughs> at the time. Um, but so I'm, um, you know, this was so years later. I'm like 22, and I just read the contract myself, um, and I was familiar with the licensing deals that um the other company had gotten. So um, uh, and the reality is, it's Hasbro. That's those to this day, like very, very little you're going to change in those contracts. It's all going to be work for hire. Any characters you create, they're going to own. Um, and you just, you just know that going into it. Do you want to work with them or not? Um, the royalty now I could have, that was the insane part. But if I, I didn't want to do anything to have them peek under the hood. (laughs) Um, so I got the license, I mean, the, the, the cash advance through credit cards and uh, whatever. And, um, you know, um, and it was just, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're that young, I guess, you know, some people, everyone's attitudes are different. My attitude was like always I'm wanting to learn more. And I just always gave way too much benefit of the doubt to the people at these companies that like they care about the characters or they understand it or, and that like that they have a system. I had already seen all these other companies send style guides to the t-shirt place. And I worked at another t-shirt place before that, that had like Looney Tunes licenses and stuff. So I, I saw professional quality, you know, super detailed style guides and I'm expecting Hasbro to have all this stuff. And, you know, so I roll in that with all these like ideas for promotion and everything and, and, you know, uh, Wanting, and I'm like asking for the reference material. And oh, and by the way, I I could have published it myself, or at least I deluded myself into thinking I could have pulled it off. Uh, I partnered with Image Comics, so Devils Do got the license, and then Devils Do partnered with Image Comics uh, mm-hmm. to release it first. And then Jim Valentino ran the company back then, and he was like, "Who the hell's this kid?" Uh, he only agreed, I think, because this other marketing guy told him like, "You have to do this," because he was probably like, "What the hell is this GI Joe crap?" And uh, um, then, you know, fans freaked out. I had set up, you know how Wizard Magazine was like, that was like the thing. Like everybody bought Wizard Magazine every month to get the latest news and interviews and comics. And 
they had been doing these like fantasy like you know uh updates of like j scott campbell would just draw like a two-page spread of the thundercats and then he would draw gi joe and he would draw transformers and i mean it was phenomenal and uh, that's another reason why i didn't understand why people didn't realize how excited the audience would be for it because this in wizard people were freaking out over this stuff every month so i had been in touch with the reporter uh the the couple the couple writers that wrote most of those interviews for the '80s stuff, and so I had lined up that Wizard Magazine gave us a big spread that oh GI Joe's coming back, and it was just so funny how out of touch all of the even the comic retailers at the time were with it because they were older and they just you know it just wasn't their time uh, and they didn't get it, and there had never been any kind of a retro phenomena like this before, and um, they didn't really take it seriously. Uh, and I mean, generalizing obviously, but, um, but they had to listen to all the people calling the shops, you know, demanding the book. And I had that all, that all lined up with wizard. Um, and then, and, and sort of just circling back to, to wizard as, as well, there's the, there was the very influential wizard 111 from December 2000, which had the, you know, sort of predicted the, the eighties nostalgia come, come back and they had GI Joe and transformers and He-Man and the Turtles and all these kind of things. What what kind of impact did did that ha- have on you? Obviously, that you ha- used J. Scott Campbell for for your covers. Was was that kind of a direct line? And did did it have any other kind of inspiration for you other than maybe helping validate the fact that that you were onto onto something that was, you know, in the background of people wanting this stuff. It was more, and this gets into the certainty of it, and why they like that kind of cast away, just like cast away any fear. I, I, it didn't give me validation. I just thought everyone already thought this. <laughs> like, like yeah, everyone knows this is going to be huge, right? And, and, uh, and but so I would always, whenever I got resistance from people, I was, I just didn't understand. I'm like, are you? Why don't you get this? Um, and, I mean, that was like, I had to fight image management once we got that deal, cause they kind of, I like, got it. It's a whole different regime there now, but the, 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 the management back then was like, I think it kind of surprised them. And, and then they got a little, and like, they don't really do the business of studio books other than like their founders. And they, you know, they do more, they, they had done like Pat Lee stuff and they, but they, they really um do independent creators one-on-one and they, they put a limit on me. Jim said I had I could only do bi-monthly. I could not put it out monthly at first. I had to prove that we could do this. So he didn't know how crazy serious I was about doing it all. And also I I kind of but I, I it kind of stunned me. I found out that the retailers really didn't get it either. And I was like, people have been coming in your stores for the last two years with these T-shirts. This is in Wizard Wizard Magazine every month. Like, how was this not obvious? But then, yeah, uh, and then with uh, with Wizard, I the cool thing was, you know, I I think it was probably the reporter uh, or the the writer uh, James McDonough who worked for Wizard. Uh, it's hard to remember, man. I met we met everybody at Wizard. Uh, James McDonough was the main like one of the main eighties writers. There was um, uh, Matt Sunreich worked there, who later ended up starting Robot Chicken with Seth Green. Um, there was all these oh, cool guys there. Um, they. Uh, I think they one of them probably put me in touch with J. Scott Campbell, and I just went to J. Scott Campbell and say, "Hey, I cannot afford you, probably, but like <laughs> he, I, everybody that worked on that book got a crazy deal because I, 
I uh, I paid way too much for the for the page rates because it was all based on faith, <laughs> and everybody that came on board, you know, just you know believed it was going to be successful. And and Campbell gave me his rate, but he man, he was down. He he agreed to do it and be paid later. But when when people really lost their minds, when when the when when people first saw what we were going to be bringing to the table, was on a GI Joe message board. I don't even remember what it was called back then. Um, there was this phenomenal painter named David Michael Beck, who had he was one of these old school like he's about fifty years old at the time, professional like commercial artist, and that was near me in Cincinnati, and he painted that Snake Eyes picture from the back of issue number one cover. When we put that on out in the public, everyone just just went insane, and mm. uh, you know, and because the first time you'd ever really seen Snake Eyes captured that realistically, like, and it looked like a movie poster. Uh, if you ask me, they ripped it off for the movie poster for uh, the, <laughs> yeah. the Ray Park Snake Eyes <laughs> uh, movie. Um, I and I got so I was like, okay, this is my one chance. This is also me not just starting the publishing, but I. I'm. This is how I get to be known as a creator in comics. I mean, I and I had a whole vision for how to bring GI Joe back, and so I redesigned all the main core characters, uh, put shipwreck, got him out of the bell bottoms and the the navy, the old school navy outfit, and got updated. Um, you know, all this, all those characters, and uh, uh, I, I made slight tweaks to Snake Eyes. I wanted to make sure we had the visor version, uh, but then like gave him like the little Batman capsules, the utility belt capsules, but on his wrist and uh. The, uh, put the Arashikage logo on his shoulder, which had never been on his costume mm-hmm. before. Yeah, and then so the book had like sixty nine thousand pre-orders. Oh, we did have one way we funded more stuff was crowdfunding didn't really exist yet, but I started taking pre-orders on subscriptions. So I said issues one through four. I don't know, it was some probably stupidly low price, something like twelve dollars or something, which meant I was going to eat shipping later, but. Uh, I just took the orders on the website and I wrote them down manually on a piece of paper. <laughs> and I had like a thousand or something, you know, pre-order subscriptions ready to go. And, you know, you couldn't just go on stamps.com them either. You know, you had to like, uh, I just slugged all that stuff to the post office. Um, and they hated me. Uh, this big, <laughs> super gloomy, like art deco 1920s era post office in the, on the North side. Um, but uh yeah we had that ready to go and then uh um image i found out image would make you a preview book and they would consider that part of the promotional budget you wouldn't have to like so so and i'm like it doesn't cost anything or what anything so (laughs) and they asked if i was going to go to san diego and i this is 2001 they had they had like a i think san diego's attendance then was like forty thousand people um there was none of the big companies there and it was just image had a i don't know a 20 by 60 or 20 by 80 like pavilion of um booths and we were one of the booths and i was like i was like oh my god that's how i afford to get to san diego we'll make this book and we'll just sell it there and man we sold like i think to this day it's one of the most successful selling conventions i've still ever had you know we just sat there with our little green army green plastic containers and some military like you know camo tarp thrown over the booth and and uh sold books um and uh and that got us through until that you know like three months later that first check came in from issue one so pre-orders were 
already like insane. They were like sixty nine, seventy thousand copies. I told Image I wanted to print a hundred, and I got yelled at that that was crazy, and said I said it's well, it's gonna be our money at the end of the day, right? Like it's coming out of my bottom line, right? You just take that, and like you guys just charge the flat fee, and and he's like, yeah. So I said, well, print a hundred, please, and um, <laughs> we sold out of that instantly. And then of course the craziest thing after this being my life for almost a year, um, nine eleven happens like the. Mm day before gi joe comes out so i mean it was just such a weird moment of like you know what the hell's gonna happen um am i gonna get drafted <laughs> you know like what's what's uh mm, the real fears of all that stuff back then and um that definitely i think the next day people came in the store and like there's this big american flag nostalgia gi joe thing uh on the shelf definitely uh did not hurt but kind of like the way the inefficiencies of the comic sit market are <laughs> it's hard to get new new books there like you that's we it's pretty much sold out already before it even hit the shelves so um yeah we ended up that that officially kicked off you know the 80s wave i, I think one thing that we do not get nearly enough credit for I'm usually just trying to be grateful and, you know, not, but I mean, comics was not in a great spot then. Like we, I mean, Marvel was coming out of its bankruptcy. Uh, they were finally letting like Joe Quesada and Bill Jamis mess around and do all kinds of like, weird stuff with the characters, which I loved. I loved all those weird Marvel books back then. That's when the ultimates came out and they were really trying to rebuild that. We brought in, we probably brought in, you know, I don't know, 50,000 people, you know, in the comic shops who hadn't been collecting, you know? Um, and, uh, who, you know, we're, I don't know how many times it's been at least like 200 times, you know, in person it shows where people said, you know what? I had left comics, but then GI Joe was back. I had to come back and check it out. And then they get there and then they see like, Oh my God, I didn't even know Marvel was doing all this stuff. And do you, you know, there's all these new books out and, and then they're, you know, they've got the bug again and then they're hooked. So, um, we really got to play a part in helping the comic industry as a whole come back, even though people, you know, we're all nerds. So most of the retail retailers just bitched that like this 80s stuff was annoying. And when would it go away while they were selling like, you know, a bunch. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, uh, or, or it was funny cause there was a time where a lot of older creators were like kind of snarky towards us about like the 80s stuff. They didn't take it seriously, but for some reason, you know, a guy jumping around in tights that had a TV show in the sixties and seventies and eighties is also more serious. <laughs> um, was there any, um, was there any upside to only being allowed to publish bi-monthly? Did it let you catch up with your team or was it a, was it a problem? Oh, I was it man, you're talking about one, once you had the confirmation that this is going to be a massive like hit, uh, that, that probably was a lost opportunity of, I don't know, half a million dollars. I mean, mm. we, because, you know, I mean, that's just, I mean, we, we were ready to go. So one thing we did to try to, uh, speed it up was they let us put out, um, battle files, which was just like, okay, I, you know, I'm like, Hey, we're, we're, we want to put out these like who's who books like DC universe or Marvel who's who. And, and that, so they said we could do that. And then, um. So that was allowed. I was able to get out like a nice, you know, like uh, 
599 book or whatever it cost at the time with nice perfect bound book uh and then um kind of supplement what we were putting out so we could we could ride that wave and then um the uh and then you know i think and then after that four months we were onto a monthly schedule and then we got we put out gi joe frontline and then uh and then by then i mean the second gi joe hit i mean the 80s wave was officially kicked off and so dreamwave went in and got transformers and you know i very specifically all the way back in that little when i was in my apartment in cincinnati i was like I could go for G.I. Joe or I could go for Transformers. Transformers has never really gone away. And I remember that conversation where they were like weird about it and they're like, they would focus on Beast Wars. And I was like, well, G.I. Joe is dead. You know, like this crappy, really crappy version in the 90s of Extreme came out. And other, I mean, this thing is dead. I'm going to go for G.I. Joe. I didn't understand how completely like unknowledgeable Hasbro licensing was about that G.I. Joe to, uh, the um, I asked for uh, style guides and they didn't have any so they tried to put some stuff together and they sent me like FedExed me like Xeroxed black and white pages of some random mix of characters from like a I don't know some kind of kid style guide thing and it was like Duke from one of these weird like mid early 90s you know towards the end when the line was really about done um I don't know, it was like Duke flying with a jetpack and like he looked like a silver hawk or something. I don't <laughs> and I was like, what is this? No, this is not the Joe we're doing. And and, uh, and I asked <laughs> about like Snake Eyes. Would it be okay to use this first specific version of Snake Eyes? And I swear to God, the answer I got was who? <laughs> um, so I got, I got like, like verbally like berated on a constant basis by this, this guy that ran the licensing department at the time, who was not a pleasant human, like just livid that like, I, I put a dominatrix in GI Joe that I, that I put this pimp in GI Joe that I put the hell's angels on a cover of this, of this beloved child's property. Um, I'm like, these are your characters guys. <laughs> um, it was so bizarre. And, and uh, so we really had this attitude of like keeping our head low. Like I was like, that was, that's, I, that's maybe to a fault. That's also how I'd rather than argue with someone. I'm like, if you don't get it, that's fine. I, I don't need to have a conflict. Let's, I'll just put my head down and go work. And, you know, um, so I, were you able to just put him right in a kind of calming way of saying, uh, you know, well, actually, uh, they, they're these characters or, you know, Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I yeah, I know. I had I had to. I had to cuz um, you know, uh it, but like we had to change stuff all the time. I mean, you know, um the uh uh like issue 3, I think it was, was like Zartan was on the Chameleon. Well, J Scott Campbell actually drew Zanya and Zartan on that, and it was a awesome picture. Plus I created Zanya, so I'm like, "Oh my god, this is one of my characters in here too, drawn by F and J Scott Campbell." And like they just thought it was way too sexual, and I'm like, that's his daughter. You know, like, and then and, and, uh, and then um, the scene where um, it's like issue ten or eleven. This is the weird. This is where the weird like subconscious kicks in. Like suddenly I know these issue numbers. Um, ten or eleven. It was like Zanya. I mean Zarana was on um her bike, and like it was just like mm-hmm. images of um some dreadnoughts and stuff in the background. And I like had to take some out because they were like they they just thought this looked like some inappropriate like 
biker comic. It was a very weird time. Like I, I didn't learn until literally in the last few years some of the dynamic going on with Hasbro and how they G.I. Joe was very important to the family, you know, the Hasenfield family. And there was this beloved attachment to the classic, you know, 1960s and 70s G.I. Joe. And then the, the, the one, you know, the one brother that really ran the show in the 80s, you know, passed away. The 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 regime after that, like they it's kind of like they just weren't there for that part. And they never it's like. Guys, this was the biggest thing ever, and and you don't even realize it. And they have this weird, like, kind of affinity for the original, to the point that at the time there was a disdain for the '80s stuff. So, mm-hmm. I was putting the book out with a company. I had the license, and the company didn't like their own property. They had, you <laughs> know, they wanted to put like they put a guy in charge who really wanted, like, he didn't like the three and three quarter stuff. He grew up with the like on the, the, you had to deal with licensing, you had to deal with the toy side, you had to deal with the PR people, and um, you'd get like, um, so the guy in charge of toys, like he that when you when, there was some just Joe stuff in like the early oddies where you I don't know you saw like a kung fu grip thing or something like that on like Duke or something. They tried to bring those twelve inch things back uh, and push those. That was all that that powers the be really wanting terribly to like get the old stuff to come back. And, and uh, so, but you know, people just want the eighties characters. <laughs> so um, uh, that was weird to deal with. And then uh, also I found out that the guy in charge of the toys, actually he, he made a run for the license as well. And he lost to me. Uh, and I didn't know that till later. Um, and then uh, they had a problem with the, at the time, their mentality, they did not yet understand, like, comics already knew this. Hey, you can have Batman that's for preschoolers. You can have Batman that's for, like, mm-hmm. nine-year-olds. And you can have Frank Miller, you know, stuff that you will, like, you know, you don't read until you're 12 or 13, and even then you're not supposed to. Um, Hasbro was like, if it's, not, if it's not suitable for a five-year-old, this is a failure. Like, we are a children's toy company, and that is what we do no appreciation for what how they had this maturing evolving brand um so then but meanwhile this thing's taken off like a freight train right so everyone's like anytime we would get like national press and like usa today or something then hasbro pr call like why didn't you clear this with us and i'm like i don't control what people cover you're welcome how about a thank you um and then uh getting yelled at for like these characters being in the book uh getting like uh uh, image kind of being skittish at first, you know. Uh, oh shit, this has gotten too big. <laughs> um, and because um, you were you, th- I mean, particularly with the first issue, was that the biggest selling uh, image title of the the month? And how did that how did that track over time? Yeah, it, it was. It was um, actually, if it hadn't been for Paul Jenkins, uh, shout outs to Paul. Uh, if it hadn't been for Paul Jenkins, um, uh, Wolverine Origins. Uh, G.I. Joe would have been the number one book um, once you calculated all of the sales for the month. Um, uh, not based on pre-orders, but once you calculate the final sales. So we were number two. And um, and then it stayed. It was it was definitely like Image's top book. Um, and then everything we did, you know, we quickly got 
the Voltron license, and then I got the Micronauts. That was a little before my time, but you know that kind of fell in our lap. Um, and we got, uh, you know, we were doing a bunch of other stuff. So we were we were crushing it. We I think at one time we were like twenty percent of Images business. Um, I mean, this is back when Robert Kirkman was just, you know, he was he had the really savvy idea of getting Eric Larson to let him use super Patriot, um, you know, and mess around with the, some of, some of Larson's like, you know, dormant characters. And, uh, mm. so Robert kind of did his own licensing thing. So this is how long ago that was. There was no walking dead yet or anything like that. And, and, um, the, he made uh, a pitch for, for GI Joe, right? Oh yeah. I was told that story. He wanted to do a thing about Destro building a base on the moon. And, uh, <laughs> I was I was probably a little bit too like uh you know taking the continuity so seriously at the time um but I was like that's not really we're not that's a little more too much like the cartoon like we're not there yet now I would be like hell yeah let, we'll find a way to do it and we'll make it badass <laughs> and we'll make it cool um and we we will but I was like that's a little too cartoony and he's just like man y'all lack vision <laughs> so uh, he he was just kidding around but um can you talk about um building your own company because at, at one point it's just you and then you are hiring an artist i mean penciler anchor and you've got like a staff artist designer and you've got like you're paying rent can you talk about building the company like the office and finding people oh yeah the um so the it's funny the first uh i mean you know for the first several years your office is just your apartment and then um the when it hit and I was like, I'm going to really need a place to go. There was this little place above a Seven Eleven. It's still there in, in Chicago, right by the Brown line, uh, which is the, that's our tube. Um, it's like an elevated train. Uh, we, there was this little office. It said offices uh, starting at $225 a month. So I went there and it was technically like, it technically it was a closet. It was eight feet by eight feet with no windows, which city of Chicago means it's a closet. That was my first office away from, you know, like my house. Was the bathroom down the hall? It was not in. Oh, the I office? was. It was next to the bathroom. <laughs> so Did you yeah, have to get um, a key for it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I I was um, and then and then we took over like an actual real office space, which is probably like a you know, a, a 20 square foot or 400 square foot little room next to the closet room. <laughs> and then, and then, and then we finished it up. We took up of our two other offices. So we had like half of this top floor. And then finally I moved over to a, a really big place that I got a uh, build out on and everything. And then, uh, uh, but, um, it's funny now, now these days I'm, I'm actually getting my first office that I haven't, I haven't had an office in like eight years and I'm getting one again, a, a formal you know, centralized office um, for meetings and stuff. Um, but um, we're still all decentralized now. I mean, uh, one person's in Los Angeles, one person's in Michigan, a couple of people here in Chicago. Um, Who were the first people you hired in 2001? 2001. So I, I just ran, I'm trying to remember. There was this other dude named Josh that I hired just to help um, who had worked at the animation studio. So he was out of a job. And uh, then I, um, I just, you know, as far as creative, I started, um, this guy, Chris Crank, who I'd known through like mutual friends in like, who had like punk bands and stuff in Cincinnati. 
he was always doing web design back in the day. And it's funny, man, if you, if I don't even know where these things exist anymore, but if you go back 20 years ago, we were doing like flash animated trailers for our comics mm. that like five years ago, Marvel would release like a big deal, mm. you know, but we were doing that back then just the, you know, there was no social media or anything. So there's no, it didn't go viral, you know, um, uh, hopefully some Joe fans remember those. He came on to help me do web design. I think I just had that one assistant. My my ex girlfriend worked. Uh, ended up she, I can't remember if she lost her job or what. It was, but she ended up working. Ended up running marketing for a long time. Nobody was really trained for all these things. <laughs> just started doing you know. And then I brought in this guy Marshall Dillon, who helped, who became who became assistant publisher. He was um, working there. And then, and so now Chris Crank to this day is actually, Chris and Marshall both letter, like, seems like damn near half the comic books out there. They, they just both converted into lettering. Um, but um, then, yeah, Tim Seeley came in to work full time. But yeah, I, he didn't come in to work on G.I. Joe. I had offered him G.I. Joe first, and he didn't think he was good enough. And he suggested Steve Kurth. And then, but Steve Kurth was always freelance. Uh, how did how did you know Tim Seeley? Where did you met? We met at a Chicago convention in like '98 or something, um, and uh, I had this comic called Penguin Brothers, and uh, like a little black and white comic, and um, the um, <laughs> the the dude I one of the other dudes I that worked on some of the books with me back in the day. This guy he was trying to hit on this this like cute girl that was talking to tim and that's like, so then uh and then i don't even remember how i don't know somebody brought tim over to our table or i brought or they brought me over to his table and you know we um just i mean back then you would just you know keep in touch on the phone and you would uh email sometimes and you would mail each other you know pages and work on projects together and try to get stuff going and uh so tim had rejoined this whole thing i'd done called minotaur he drew redrew the whole damn comic and then uh i can't remember why i didn't publish it it might have been because it wasn't because gi joe hit I, I just can't remember what happened there um so he turned the job down he had a he had a pretty solid job in minneapolis then and and didn't you know and he also he was just didn't think he was good enough to handle gi joe and he suggested kurth and then, I, I, ironically, later, as soon as I had anything and I had the money, I hired Tim to work on uh, this book, Core, which was, again, another reboot of the of the Minotaur thing. And uh, so Tim was awesome at drawing big, giant monster dudes. So um, he worked on that book. And then uh, um, I, I needed someone. I wanted to I wanted to do a lot of that stuff in-house, if possible. Um, and so then Mike Norton came on to work on Voltron with he did characters and then somebody else did um backgrounds and so then you know, kind of like before you know it you've got you know okay we had one office with a few people hanging out drawing and a couple people hanging out drawing and then another office like kind of like admin stuff going on with like about three different people there was always like one or two interns in the mix and then i had an office room that i shared with this guy who was kind of like my assistant and then uh then um that's really how that built up and you know i always built i guess kind of the curse is like 
I actually do have a knack for building out those operational structures and I'm really good at building systems and that, that work well when people follow them. I'm not very good at riding people's butts to like, I'm not going to ride in your ass to make you follow the system, <laughs> but I'm always just like, look, here's a system. All right, now everyone go do your job. And now if, if, uh, if something goes wrong, the first thing we do is like, was this, did you follow the system? Is this your fault or is this a problem with the system? If it's a systems problem, just let me know. And we need to redo, we need to fix something. And this stuff, you know, you don't realize this until later when you have that kind of goal and you just want to get in and you, you create the business out of the necessity and or impatience of wanting to be hired, you know, you don't want to wait. So you, you build the business cause I just want to make comics then, but you know, you've got other people are just like, Hey, I want to start a business. What's a good idea to, what, what's something that would be good to start a business about what's profitable. So they think about it that way. And like, you know, but I, I just, and that's actually a smarter way to do it. But I, I, you know, I'm just like, this is just cause I want to make shit and I want to, I want to make enough money to be able to make more stuff. And I want to not have to worry about it. Any doing anything else. I want just to be able to do this forever. And, and that's, that's what a creator wants to do really. So, um, I was going to say you you're doing an awful an awful lot on the creative side you were you know writing GI Joe uh, um you know and multiple titles con- concurrently you I guess were overseeing a publishing empire and uh, an employer of an increasing a number of people who who were sort of relying on you for uh for you know their their living um, so quite a big weight of response responsibility, um, you know, given the enormous, I guess, sort of uh, responsibilities and the I guess work involved in in spinning all of those different plates. Did it, you know, were you able to retain a sense of you know fun in terms of you know getting into it to create comics and and live the dream? Um, you know, were, were you able to actually yeah enjoy it while while you're riding the roller coaster? We did, but it wasn't like we we had time we like made time but um we're also like chicago is very much a a a party you know pub town (laughs) with bars on every other corner and i mean we're you know it's notorious for being open till 4 or 5 a.m for some of the bars and uh, we you know we just we all partied you know we we would work everyone was in their like 20s we would work like you know that's the thing i i mean we we weren't run like most comic art studios where it's like dudes just want to draw and they get a studio and they're, you know, they're like, they're, there's no real set schedule. I mean, we were there, the company, I mean, people showed up like eight 30 worked till five or six. Um, every book we did was almost every book was licensed, which is extremely difficult to do with all these approvals. Mm-hmm. And you're dealing with like these corporations with just people that have day jobs that they just want to, you know, validate their job and making a comment on something. And, make your publishing life difficult <laughs> by default. So we, we busted our asses and uh, every book came out on time. Like we were always on time. And, and then, you know, we would, I would get off work and then go to the gym. And then, you know, a couple times a week we would go out and, you know, drink until like three in the morning. And um, <laughs> then we, uh, uh, it was just a grind. And I used to joke, I used to have a running gag with like the, so these like Pakistani immigrants that owned Seven Eleven that we was under us. And they would tease joke the, like who, who was going to work later. <laughs> Cause like, I'd be there till midnight a lot of times. 
I mean, I had a really bad diet soda pop addiction. I would drink diet sodas <laughs> like crazy. Uh, the fountain, oh, like the man. big, like you're talking like a, you know, Bucket a two pop. liter size cup. You know, it was bad. And <laughs> I, I really started to fall apart when I was like 25, started having lots of muscle problems and pain problems. And uh, 26, I'd wake up in the middle of the night sometimes with a racing heartbeat, just stressed about payroll or, uh, or something. Or, or and it's funny. Every I'm not the only person in the company who had like would have like a nightmares about Hasbro approvals. <laughs> like <laughs> you would have dreams that you got a, a book was late or you got an approval rejection. Um, and then um, I was actually yeah, I started to really fall apart around 26, 27. I had I was like my I had all these bag problems. I. I, I don't even know if people paid attention, but I brought in this weird like cane thing for massaging your muscles. I would always have on hand, and um, that was not good. And, and on top of like around, I don't want to get into around 2008, 2007. I I let in ex, ex, trying to expand the company and trying to get some actual business help. I brought in really like some of the wrong people to like help take over running the business side, and it was did not end well. It was just not understanding, you know all just everyone's different dynamics and and how how uh some people's motivations are um did you kick the diet soda addiction <laughs> yeah so i um the the good side of there was like it was a blessing in disguise because i mean i this is a goofy little personal side thing <laughs> yeah i just started um i learned about getting like a good mix of a like, chiropractic and massage and i learned a lot about supplementation and all these different like herbs I could start to take and like other just nutrients and supplements I could take. I started switched over to those carbonated like LaCroix uh, sodas, <laughs> uh, carbonated sodas. I started crushing like 12 packs of those and I would drink co- and I drank coffee instead. And um, all that, I just, it was like all of a sudden after five years of torture, like one day just felt totally fine. And um, it was like a miracle. And, and I, and it like happened that, that dramatically and then for the next like five or so years i'd still always have to like worry about if i didn't get a massage and stuff i might hurt my back or something but now i'm in my 40s and like i don't have any of that problem any of those problems i feel better now than i ever did so it was kind of a blessing to feel like shit in my 20s (laughs) wake up cool i looked a hell of a lot better and i actually had muscles but (laughs) can you Um, can you talk about um, can you talk about doing layouts for the opening arc and working with Steve Kurth, or 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 is that uh, an outgrowth of writing the initial arc? I always forget that I did the layouts. Yeah, um, that was kind of how I and for number five too, I think. Yeah, that was kind of mm, how yeah. I, I I wrote would wrote uh, that way, you know, because I um one was part of like conscious decision, like I wanted as much. I wanted as much creative credit as possible for a very, you know, like just, you know, selfish, like I, I, I need, I need to make a claim here. This is my one shot to like get my name out there as a creator. So I'm going to write it. Uh, and I want to do some kind of drawing on it. So I, that's why I redesigned the characters and then, um, did the, um, and I did the layouts. Um, and then at some point it was just like, okay, I can't keep doing that. <laughs> you know, Steve got it, Steve. But that, you know, for if you do draw, um, if you've grown up where you've always just written, you know, you've always written comics and you can draw, um, sometimes, you know, you'll get to a point where it's just easier to sketch it out. Um, uh, usually it's, it's the, uh, if it's a very specific fight scene or if it's, um, uh, 
maybe a lot of times it was just like say three people just talking but something's happening and you're like okay i gotta get it straight in my head where, where are all these characters you know literally like where they're standing would like make would affect like what they're saying and what they're doing so you'll just switch over scribble it out and then depending on how long you've been working with that artist you might not even send them the full script you might just say hey just here do this alan moore does that kind of stuff all the time you'll see his little awesome little thumbnails um and uh yeah so that's um that, did you uh, did you allow yourself to get paid uh, like a page rate for writing the first issues or the first uh, two years? Or was that sort of a freebie because you were getting paid for owning the company? Um, I just paid myself uh, a salary. Um, I had a I actually I had real em- official employees versus I didn't just have contractors. Um, I paid a salary and then um, I um, would be able to take any profit at the end of the year in the company and if i wanted to i could pay myself more um like but you know i'm a comic creating junkie so i just would put all the money back into the company and and uh um the company never really would make money (laughs) Uh, we would just expand and do more comics and i i'm really i i never really paid myself much more than like 40 grand a year back then as much as we were you know i i was able to buy you know, buy a car, buy a condo and all that stuff. And then, um, you know, then I upped my salary a little bit, but in hindsight, what I really should have done was just, just kept putting out those books. Didn't, don't try to expand, just crank out, just stockpile all that cash, write it and milk it till it's done. And then take a year off and decide what to do. But I, I was, you know, I, I was thinking like, the same goal. I was like, I want to be able to do this forever. You know, something like I need to expand this and, and, you know, you know, uh, yeah. Get it, get it to the size of image or Marvel, you know, trajectory to the future. Yeah. But the, um, um, on the company side, just, you know, it's that, that gets into like, I don't know if the audience is interested in that stuff, but I, uh, structure, um, you know, there's different ways you can structure it in, in the U S uh, and also different States have different rules, but, you can either do a corporation where you like a, like a, a S corp or a C corp where, um, you're, it's taxed a certain way. Um, it's its own private entity and it's taxed. And then what you get, you pay yourself on your paycheck tax or your, or your payroll tax is one thing or then your dividends are taxed a different way. So, or you can do an LLC where it, it just all flows through to the owners, but you can write off all your deductions. So, there's really no separation between my life and my, my business. I mean, so I don't like, I don't need a car when the company can just have a car that it's going to be using for stuff. And I don't care about having, you know, certain, like, like most of my house is taken up by kind of like office stuff and studio stuff. Like if you really stripped away what my personal life was like, it, it you know it could be like a studio apartment <laughs> like just because it's it's a privilege to get to work in this business and it's like this is what you're going to do anyway as your hobby right so um there's there's really not a, a division yeah you just surround yourself with it yeah and it's there's uh there's the the work-life balance thing isn't even really like a applicable argument there like balance as far as like yeah don't don't like work yourself till midnight every night and 
grind yourself into a bad health state like I did. But as far as like, you know, once you got stress levels managed down and you know how to do that, I mean, you're like, yeah, do you want this to be your life if, if you get to do it all the time? Um, you speak with uh, so much passion for making comics as a reader before 2001 and before 1996. What were the comics that really grabbed you? And did you have a place where you bought comics? Uh, yeah, we, we went around. Um, I'm sorry, what did you say? What? What, what were the comics that, that moved you the most when you first got into reading them? Oh, um, so ironically, not at first it was not superhero stuff at all. Um, the, the first comics I ever read religiously was literally G.I. Joe. Um, and everyone always asked what issue it was, and I really cannot remember. 18, but I think it 18. may... may <laughs> I think it may have been one of the special missions where snow job <laughs> we talked about and stalker and maybe was it outback i don't know we're all trapped were they trapped in trucial abysma i don't remember i just opened it up and i saw like oh my god they actually use real bullets in this <laughs> and i dad can i have this that got me hooked on gi joe where did you get those comics 7-eleven or or some other convenience store like that on a spinner rack awesome okay was there um did you have an older sibling or was there like a neighbor or a parent who already approved of or like fed you comics or did you like were you the person in your family who started comics? There was no real like like geeks in my family at first, but well, no, that's not well my dad was this is before that really culture existed. <laughs> no, my dad always had comics laying some kind of comic laying around, but not like he wasn't really a comic reader. He was like a Conan reader and a, like a Thor reader. Cool. But mostly Conan. Conan would show up in the mail. Oh, wow. And this is so funny because Larry Hama was actually the editor on Conan. And years later, he was laughing when I told him that because he's like, our number one fan mail for Conan came in from convicts. <laughs> 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 um, but um, I had my dad was a super creative dude. Like he's the kind of guy that like he doesn't like the way something in the house looks. He'll knock the wall down and rebuild it all. And, and uh, like there's a picture of me when I'm a baby, it's, I was born in 1977 and he's holding me and I'm scared shitless and because Darth Vader's holding me. And it's this like, now it looks like a pretty kind of goofy Darth Vader outfit, but he made that all by memory by himself, like molded the helmet, molded the plastic uh, at a factory he worked at and, and got the electric set up to make the lights for the box inside. And he got actually got hired by some movie theaters oh, wow. to uh, stand outside on weekends and, and then he won all these Halloween costume contests with it at the nightclubs. <laughs> and uh, my mom, and when they were still married when I was a kid, like they, her and some of her girlfriends, they would all dress up and just they would all wear white. So they were like stormtrooper chicks. <laughs> um, so there, there was that like always that creativity. And then I'm, and then my mom herself, um, I don't ever remember them being married because they split when I was a kid. But my mom's super creative too. Like none of them my dad would draw and try to like i would ask him to draw me pictures when i was little but he would like copy stuff um my, my mom's like super creative about just making cool little things for you to play with or like you'd come home one day and oh i i decided to like take all your little i had these little play school astronaut toys little 
those cheesy little like cute they're kind of like lego people but bigger um yeah like little flat feet yeah yeah and i had this like a little space ones and i came home from like first grade or something and she had made me like a moon base out of tinfoil <laughs> like that kind of fun creative stuff was always happen and i did they say that like i just they no one ever told me to or anything i was like two years old and drawing and they said you were just always obsessed with drawing from the like you were just came out to shoot for that ready to do that and so i drew a lot like i i would just sit there i was like this weird four-year-old that would sit still for two hours and draw pictures sounds familiar yeah like and then they you know they just they always supported that so that was that was uh i was never i was always it was always the belief like yeah, if you if you want to do a job that way, yeah, you could totally do that. So I was encouraged. Like I, and it, it was always a very open like. Well, yeah, it's, it wasn't like can you do that? It was like well, figure it out, you know. So, because I, I remember being, I can't remember being, I don't know, five years old, telling people I wanted to make uh, cartoons, and they would bring up, they would reference like Sunday funny comic strips, and I would get frustrated. Cause I didn't have the vocabulary to explain, no, I need to, I need to make the cartoons on the TV, like the cartoons that move. And then finally I learned animation at a very young age. And I like wrote letters to Disney when I was like nine years old, <laughs> you know, like, how do you do this? And they would actually write you back. And you could literally, as a kid, you could just write a letter to the company. Hey, do you, there's no internet. So <laughs> how do you do this? And they would send you brochures and stuff uh, on, you know, what it's like to be a Disney animator and, um, and DC and Marvel would send you rejection letters. You know, I had a lot, I got rejection letters when I was like 13 years old, (laughs) sending in terrible drawings. So that was just, you know, there was never that thing. It's like, it wasn't like ever being worried about failure. It was like, okay, yeah, you're, Oh, you're, you figure this out. Cause you're going to mess up on the, you got to figure out how to do it. So, and we don't know how, (laughs) so that but my the never pivotal, an idea that it wasn't a possibility. Yeah. Now I think I, I scared him a little bit when I got into like running off to like I probably terrified my mom. She probably quietly freaked the hell out when I just one day was like, <laughs> I'm moving to Chicago, bye <laughs> and oh, setting up gosh. this company and, and then they show up like, you know, they don't my parents are terrible about traveling anywhere. So they finally, you know, come to the city a couple years later and i've got a whole office with a staff and they're like what the hell they're like well keep doing what you're doing Um, this is our kid (laughs) yeah um and in in turn too when you when things are hard and you're really stressed and you got trouble you you can't explain to them exactly what's going on and then i mean it's funny now like when it comes to like hollywood and all that stuff like we used to have an office out in los angeles and we used to work with all these celebrities and i feel like we're just barely getting back to where we were on some of that stuff and my family now is more excited than they've ever been i'm like you not <laughs> realize what the hell i was doing in like 2007 i was trying to la every six weeks and and like these me like but you know what it was there was they weren't on social media like they they didn't actually see any evidence of these things happening other than like a random phone call or something. So, (laughs) um, that's a fan. It's always weird with family when you're trying to explain that stuff. Um, but I, the pivotal moment where I was like, I truly just became a huge comic book nerd was, um, my aunt Claire took me to see the Michael Keaton Batman movie and it blew my mind. I had Mm. no idea that, 
I think I got excited before that because they were hyping it up, but I had no idea that Batman was like a badass. I thought I, well, what, I was like twelve or something. Um, the hype well, for that 80, movie was huge. Eighty-nine. Yeah, I mean, it was there had never been anything like it, and we uh-huh. were, um, you know, I it was that age where like I had no idea that the the Adam West Batman show was this genius satire thing. You know, I I just thought that was dumb, <laughs> and uh, um. And I was like, oh, my God, you mean Batman's like Batman's awesome. <laughs> so <laughs> I begged my mom. So my stepdad was in the Air Force station at Fort Meade, Maryland then. So I would be with them all summer. And then my dad had moved to Florida. So I bounced around a lot, um, which is another reason why a typical story of like you're by yourself a lot. You asked if I had siblings. I yeah. was I, I was yeah. siblingless until I was seven. And then my mom had my first sister. And I ended up I have three sisters now with my mom and stepdad and so I'm like, you know, my my baby sister's 13 years younger than me. Um, oh wow! And then also I'm I so I'm an only child, like half more than over half the time when I'm with my dad down in Florida, and uh, I, I was like I hated being in Florida. I just hated th- th- that state, like in general, like <laughs> not to uh, I, <laughs> I the area we were in. Like I was not in a fun. I was just in a, it's a dead area with nothing happening. Um, but that drove me to you know be bored a lot and draw a hell of a lot of comics um and uh and write and then um yeah my stepdad was in maryland and and i begged my mom to take me it was this comic shop somewhere in laurel maryland outside of baltimore and they had the killing joke and the the dark knight collection and the greatest joker stories ever told greatest batman stories ever Mm -hmm. told that mark dc back then um, they really had their shit together on, you know, making sure all those Batman books were ready to go for the the people coming into the stores, and I was I was the poster child example that movies work, movies drive <laughs> readership, and so then my stepdad had like a bunch of siblings, and his two of his younger brothers were kind of kind of into X Men, and my one uncle Alan he drew a lot. So I was always excited to talk to them and they're like teenagers. And, and, uh, I brought up like, did you know that Robin <laughs> is not even Robin anymore? He's called Nightwing. <laughs> and then my uncle shows up with like two plastic grocery bags full of teen Titans, George Perez, Marwolf and comics. And he's like, here you go, buddy. <laughs> and I, that was like the summer of 19, 19- 89 or 90 i just devoured all those and um uh became a hardcore dc comic book nerd and never gave two craps about marvel <laughs> that's that's because that's <laughs> like i just got so in the rabbit hole on that and i read batman religiously for years and that's what uh, happens you you pick a side early and you're you know a lot of times you're on that you might stray you know yeah. you might read a kingdom come or uh, or maybe slog through crisis on infinite earth but nah it, Marvel hooks you when you're early. You're a Marvel kid for life. Same with DC. Yeah, and then um, I I got into the Marvel stuff in my 20s when when Jemis and Casada were doing all kinds of weird experimentation, you know. And I got yeah, there's um, some cool stuff back then. And, and then the Ultimate when the Ultimates line came out, I was like, awesome! I don't have to learn the continuity. I'm gonna. <laughs> and and these were like badass like stories. Um, but uh, really though, then I mean, what I or what I organically fell to after that though was like I just loved. Well, all right, so Ninja Turtles, right? That hits, like, I think it was, like, 13 or something when that came. 
no, that came out, was it 87? Something like, I don't know, like 11 or something. Uh, I, um, the same thing, I'm walking in the, in the mall and I saw the first comics collected at publications of the full color Teenage Mutant Ninja mm. Turtle books where they colorized yep. the black and white books. And I was like, what are these badass turtles? Um, and it was like, got... they were oversized. They were like 14 inches by 11 or something. It was, it was a bigger book. I got those. Yeah, that's how I got them too because I didn't have a comic shop around, and then I yeah. saw those in Walden books. And Walden, I was like, Walden books, dude. Oh, Walden cool. Books. Yeah, my my mm-hmm. Walden books at my mall had those, and I got them. Remember, Walden books had one shelf, and it was called the sci-fi shelf, and it was all the comics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and then uh, so that got me down like learning all. I started buying any black and white Ninja Turtle comics I could, and and then all the other oh, ton, wow. Tundra stuff, and Ke- any. I really loved Kevin Eastman's art the most on those, um, and. Um, then uh, I actually one of my one of my I don't collect a lot of original art stuff, but my one prized possession is Kevin drew me a Leonardo, um, and it like he spent like a half hour on it, sitting next to me at a con one time, and just gave it to me. So I still I have that. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and then you know Scott. So then it's like I'm already now I'm a teenager, and like the Crow comes out, uh, getting those comics, and then I mean movies really did influence a lot, uh, but. Uh, one of my favorite things was just Scud the Disposable Assassin. Loved that. And then I would just, I would, you know, you go to the the dollar bins and you get three comics for a buck, and then you're you're just reading. That's how you dive into like a lot of the superhero universes. But then Valiant came out when I was fourteen, in eighth grade. Uh, me and my friend Arnold, in in Pinellas Park, Florida got jobs you could at 14 years old you could get a job at this one place called wagon wheel flea market and this was a massive <laughs> like i think 2000 booth flea market um outside in the hot in the hot in florida summer but well they're open they were open all year round this when i would happen to be there we got the jobs we could make 425 an hour we're like 14 years old. We're making $60 a weekend. We we were we were a lot of comics. Yeah, we were like ballers. <laughs> yeah. Um great. And, and it totally violated all these child labor laws. <laughs> this flea market did. We would if they said hey, you want to work 11 hours today, we're like hell yeah. And so this a- story started off with him uh, breaking licensing laws with a, a hippie publishing group <laughs> and then being and, abused. And then we by go us, back to uh, breaking laws here. I see a pattern, Josh. Yeah. This this guy man, this old country this old country dude Hardy Huntley ran that flea market and he hired fourteen year olds to work like awesome slave labor um but he did um Six, sixty dollars gets you two hundred forty comics from the quarterback oh exactly hey it was you know what was funny in hindsight this was basically like setting up a convention every weekend they were uh you, you know we more we had, experience we had to go around, there you go we had to go around f- fold up the tables throw them on the truck. One time, the truck ran over my foot while I was throwing the table on there. I really lucked out. I was on soft ground. (laughs) And then uh, I was um, lucky that day. (laughs) Oh my god! They, they, they. uh, But there was a comic book retailer there. This guy Mark Fountain, and he was more than happy to take every penny we 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 (laughs) we just took our paychecks. We should have just given that guy our paychecks. That was right when all the gimmick comics launched. So Young Blood's coming out. Oh for no, this is before that. Uh, Jim Lee's X Men's coming out. Rob Liefeld's uh, X Force is out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Silver Surfer issue fifty foil cover comes out. The Ghost mm-hmm. Rider Glow in the Dark Mark Texera cover comes out. 
Valiant Comics was kicking ass. So I bought all the gimmick stuff, but I really like I would really get excited about reading stuff like the Valiant books. And then my stepdad got out of the Air Force, moved back to Ohio where he was from, but instead of Dayton where we had been at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, he moved to Cincinnati, his his childhood, you know, home. So that's when I I, le- I, did, I moved back from my dad to my mom's and I moved to Ohio and a whole different environment and that's when um they announced Image Comics was coming out. And just like that's it was so crazy like there was literally like you know the fr- front page of a certain section of the newspaper was like had Savage Dragon on it talking about you know seven artists leave Marvel and uh I had already always been a sucker like I had read because I was obsessed with Disney animation and stuff I read like two Disney biographies when I was like seventh and eighth grade obsessed with all that stuff and uh, then became a sucker for any kind of like story where someone builds their own little empire. So when Image Comics happened, it was like, oh my god, you know, this is incredible, and just and I learned around, I think around twelve, I was like, you know what, I keep animation seems like it's really hard work, and you're like just in the background slugging away, and uh, and tedious, yeah, and comics you can do whatever you want. All I ever do is draw comics. Why am I trying to look at animation? I literally draw comics every day, and so twelve or thirteen was like, okay, I'm gonna be a comic book artist, and then fifteen or however old images announced like these guys are doing it the right so that's when comics indie comics explodes people are offering you know to publish anything and and like i had a couple goofy publishers offer to publish my stuff which they no one should have it was not professional yet uh but i i did end up putting out my first book like march 1996 i graduated high school in 95 drove to a convention to try to get a publishing deal ended up not working out and then, uh, you know, got solicited in the Diamond catalog as soon as I could and got the first book out then. So good for you. Um, and then just, you know, kept figuring it out. Uh, pub- the, the nuts and bolts of publishing really aren't that hard. You you start a company that you send the book to a distributor, uh, which right now in comics is, well, hey, there's finally um, options again. But you... They put it in their catalog, and retailers can buy it if they want. That's publishing. <laughs> when you really it's like boil you it told down. your employees, it's a process. You just have to learn what the process is and then follow it. It's like yeah. anything. People act like, oh, I could never do that. Yeah, you could. You just got to do it. You just got to believe in yourself and, and take the chance and do it. You did, and that's awesome. So yeah, we're we've we've been definitely high throughout the podcast on just how what what a big achievement it was for you uh, to get that license at that age and. I mean, shit, like you said, I wasn't doing that at 22. I, I never, I wasn't thinking about it. I was working at a comic book store, uh, you know, and that was cool, but I wasn't thinking about making them or, or going after a license. So yeah, good job. Thank you. It, it puts you in a, it, 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 this, this is, we, you know, everyone has their own path and like sometimes it's almost like it might be a little better to have, to do things the more traditional way and then come into it. But you know, it's like, then you, you know, I tell you what makes a big difference is if somebody knows what they want to do when they're a kid, it completely changes their whole development because they, they just have a different type of development. Sometimes to a detriment, they might not be as social <laughs> or, you know, they might, yeah, it might be awkward in other ways because they were like, they didn't care about the other like things high school kids care about or middle school kids care about because they wanted to do things. And, and, um, a lot of times those people can go a really weird direction too. So I hope to think I 
became well-rounded. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I didn't understand until much, many years later, like in my thirties, really get a better sense of like, okay, you got to understand when you're doing business, are you talking to an employee or are you talking to like an owner or are you talking to an executive level person at a company? Like, but what's, you know, how, what's their background? Are they an entrepreneur? Have they all had their own small business or they, or they, do they work for a living in, cause everyone's got a different perspective on how they are, what they're, how they see things. And, and a lot of times on small business entrepreneurs can make a mistake of like not being sensitive to that. And, assuming that everyone thinks about things a certain way and you're like, Oh no, no, no. Like this, you know, this employee is not thinking about the other five things that affect the, what they're doing right now. Like they, they do not care like at that company. So you, you just, you, you finally like mature and, and kind of the weird thing now is though how big we were. I mean, we were like one of the top 10 comic companies in North America for a long time. And it was a whole different industry back then there. I mean, we really kind of kicked off, the licensing comic industry that exists today other than dark horse back when nobody did it. And then after mm -hmm, we started mm -hmm. it, it really became like a thing everybody did. And now you have to do it if you want to be a big publisher. And I've just always, I didn't set out like I'm My goal was never to build the biggest publishing company in the world. You know, I just want to be able to make cool shit. And, uh, also, um, yeah, you know, it's like I got really sucked into the whole world of uh, uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. And eight years ago was like I had learned what was going to be able to start to happen with artwork in this technology and what might how that might affect comics and video games and everything else. And I was I've been waiting for that to happen for years now. And it was the same thing. Like you just have to go out there. And there's no there's no clear path it's like people building a whole new world and you just kind of throw yourself out there, contribute something to the, to the community or you make, you know, I made a comic about that stuff, like an educational thing started, just go to, go to conventions by yourself, show up and you just stumble around meeting people. And then two years later, you somehow have a network and, uh, you know, just, um, don't be afraid to, don't be afraid to be, to feel stupid. <laughs> it's the, is, uh, I guess the mantra. <laughs> If if I if I change sort of tack a little bit, um, one one of the things you were talking about earlier was was um, the sort of the Marvel Ultimate Universe and the influence that 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 had when when that that came out. And it, what struck my mind as you were talking about that was particularly the Ultimate Spider Man. What what was kind of notable about it at the time was how uh, decompressed it was with the with the writing of Brian Michael Bendis, and and it's you know famous for you know. Um, Spider-Man not actually turning up in costume for for a little while, and, and you know the the more you know sedate pace that it it, it um it moved at in, in the uh in the initial issues, uh, and contrasting that to uh, the initial issues of of Devils, well actually most of the run of Devils due to to be to be fair where it just moved at a pace and and there was uh a, a, you know a lot happening in in each issue particularly that opening arc and I, I wondered sort of that that aspect of just cramming so much into that fir first arc was that was that kind of uh how, how would you kind of describe that process my, you know my my kind of guess was was that you know you've you know a lifelong fan of gi joe so much love so many ideas and you know 
you hoped that it's be a be a success, but but it's not you know no guaranteed thing. Was it just you know thinking this is my chance? I want to cram everything, uh, cram everything in. Uh, you know, I'm not going to waste a single panel here. Definitely, uh, it was a you know the decision was who not to include, not who to include because <laughs> there's so many. Uh, but I mean, it was it was very clear from the beginning like, that has to be the the you know the core most group of like those foundational Joe members, you know, um, from what I felt was the most popular, you know, not the very, very first run of all those Joes, but that, mm-hmm. that like early, like mid eighties crew. Um, and, and, and part of it, you know, Hey, part of it is cause I got to play with these toys. So these are my favorite guys. Um, that's why like shipwrecks in there and, and mm-hmm. roadblock and everything. So it, it was really, I don't know. I, I, it was the first team book, like that I'd ever, you know, really written. Um, and I, I think, uh, it was just always about one. I wanted to, the only really goals I set was, you know, I wanted to make sure it was set very seriously, like in the comic book universe and picked up right where Marvel left off with the same continuity. But I did want it to feel like kind of like you were watching the cartoon if it had been like updated and like given the seriousness of the comic book um, so that, you know, all Joe fans would get it, would like enjoy it. And basically what I would want to see like a movie be like, you know, like, I mean, um, and then uh, what I wanted to do uh, with Cobra was um, to have, I wanted to have it so that um, the, that the dreadnoughts were like this national chapter, like the hell's angels Mm-hmm. and that Cobra Commander had been... I wanted Cobra Commander to have been bouncing around the world, like, having secret meetings with terrorist organizations, um, like, in different cells, and um, different leaders of other countries or who might, you know, have issues with, like, the U.S. And then to um, also... And then he's got this relationship with this arms dealer... And then for him to finally, like, basically, like, I wanted this moment where the Joes realized that, oh, shit, this guy, it, this was like um, Genghis Khan uniting all of the different rival, you know, Han, um, like, people in China, the different tribes to come together to fight the empire. Uh, just like the in the in after the Roman Empire was falling, the way that the, you know, Hannibal and the God, all, the, all these other people, like, pulled together all of the barbarian tribes um this they just have this moment where holy crap this guy cobra commander has been out there and he has tied all these terrorist networks together all these uh this these arms this you know destro and the whole arms industry and some leaders of some other countries and and like on the ground domestically this entire nationwide network of motorcycle gangs and all like these militias basically. And now he's ready to like kick off his plan. And it'd be like terrifying. And that was a little too heavy, you know, for, for Hasbro. <laughs> and then, and then the second that nine 11 happened, it was like any mention of like terrorism suddenly was just not going to fly. Um, mm. And, uh, or, or, or doing it, referencing any actual, like, especially like middle Eastern, you know, kind of terrorist cell. So, um, so do you think it could have been potentially quite a different book without that real life dynamic sort of inserting itself? 
I, I think I think it would have been a little more a little little more serious and uh, you know a little grittier, but um, that would have never flown with Hasbro anyway. So I knew I had to keep it light, and I just wanted to um, you know the important thing about GI Joe is it's always really about the camaraderie of those characters, and it's about one 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 foundational thing that Larry set up was it's about the soldiers and it's about the camaraderie between the team. It's um it's about you know, it's not there, and it doesn't even say that like the the powers that be in the military are the good guys. It doesn't say that the United States is always the good guy. It's it's um it's about the soldiers, despite those flaws, still going forward and and um trying to do what's right. Then um on on the Cobra side, you basically it's like basically the you know the U.S. military versus the Legion of Doom. <laughs> you know, you got super villain casts, and so the Co- Cobra guys are always like super fun and interesting to write and um i was just playing around man i didn't really have any like big plans i wanted i it was more like how did how do i want to see these characters updated was always kind of the goal like i i knew i i knew (laughs) it's so funny i keep going back to like oh this is the breaking the laws joke so my uncle grew up with like a lot of like the actual outlaw motorcycle gang like my un- my uncle was like he's like a mechanic savant and he's always loved Harleys and stuff and he he just by circumstance to where they grew up a lot of his friends were in like an actual bike gang with national chapters and stuff so I learned before this is before Sons of Anarchy and all that I learned kind of what that world was a little bit like not that I really saw like too much so I was like man this is what the Dreadnoughts should be like they should have like national yeah. chapters and they've just they've just been growing while cobra was away like sleeping you know so now the dreadnoughts have their own thing and let's make the dreadnoughts actually like a real biker gang um who happen to like chocolate donuts and grape soda <laughs> um <laughs> and uh so that was like really building up the dreadnoughts and then then the uh you know really trying to um you know really pick up on the whole snake eyes story and throw Kamakura in there. Kamakura was so much of like a last minute thought of like, well, he should have an apprentice. I want Snake Eyes. Kamakura, uh, who became one of like the most popular things I ever did, wasn't even about creating an apprentice. I, it was more like, I wanted Snake Eyes to feel like, oh shit, we're seeing Snake Eyes again. He And he's like full on master now. Like he's just this badass master. So he has to have an apprentice. And then it just happens that, you know, Kamakura was literally the first character in the first issue to appear uh, from the Joes, and people instantly loved him. So it's so funny that st- I don't really have a good answer for you though, as far as like how <laughs> I, because everything else I write, I obsessively uh, build out like the world and the rules of the universe in that world and all these things, and then then have the general plot in there, and then I just kind of like throw the characters in there, and they they sort of interact based on the rules of that world. And I like there's there are things that I have thought of for the stuff I'm writing now that no one's ever going to see, but I have to know it because it keeps me from having the character do something that would contradict something later. But with G.I. Joe, those rules were already set, you know? Yeah, your own story. Bible. Yeah, yeah. It's like they've just got their own. Yeah. They already had a story Bible ready to go. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was more about, you know, who do we want to? What kind of general long term plan did you have? Like. I know you, you put the, the seed for Serpentor in 16 and then didn't pick up on it until your last arc. So kind of like 
you have an idea going into it how long you were going to be on it and like what prompted uh, you leaving at what point did you say i, I gotta go I, I can't do this i anymore. only i think i just or was that what it was or did you just your story was done uh probably i really it's 20 years ago probably a little bit of both but i really i was writing at one time so i was running the company and we got to where we had like i don't know six full-time employees and i had like probably 30 or 40 contractors at a time uh, and and i was writing at one time i was writing like five books a month um on top of doing all that other stuff and doing layouts and sketching and i was one of those books was uh misplaced for image which i was drawing uh everything except i was drawing all the characters with some background help so i was doing all that and uh you know that's why it's like now i'm like why the hell do you just sit back and write gi joe and like you know go on vacations <laughs> uh but uh so yeah um i think it was just you know i probably needed a little bit of a break and serpentor though was another thing where i was like oh man serpentor is such a goofy character but he's so cool <laughs> like how do we yeah, how he's do a we, badass we can yeah, say yeah yeah like how do we bring him back and make him a badass how do we make dr mindbender more of a serious kind of threatening character and it's it's funny because all of the really think about it cobra is just a bunch of like the more like realistic batman villains you know like some of their personalities like how like dr mindbender is like a perfect batman villain you know but like yeah how do you tie in you know bring serpentor back in a menacing way and i could i literally can't remember how i planned it out but i i you know i have my weaknesses as a writer but my one of my strengths is that i am like i build up threads and i always go back on and back around to them like i never ever split off on like a side thread without knowing why I, like what i was um what that is supposed to lead to eventually like i hate making random weird mysterious things that happen that i don't have planned out on why they're happening <laughs> i have the option to leave them a mystery but i do not ever i you know i feel like i've been burned so many times by awesome fiction series where you find out the writers never had any idea what they were doing all along um, Are you sure you've never read Chris Claremont's X Men? Or GI Joe? You know, Larry famously <laughs> says that you know he makes it up as he goes along. He oh, I know. He writes one page. I just write to, one page at a time. He yeah, he's always comparing to like he just follows the Charles Dickens model and writes one page at a time. And I, I, I like the Victor Hugo model where he never <laughs> introduces a single character in his novels where you there's not a reason for that character to be there almost to a fault sometimes and and what you know what's noticeable about i guess the, the devil's due run compared to the marvel one is that typically um you know it was laid out in in arcs you know and and at the beginning of an arc it you know would yeah well, often be say you know one of four one of three what whatever so there's there's you know it seems like there's some some planning going on as to, to the overall idea. It must be some overall planning of the idea of that arc going into it. So you know, and that you know coincides, I guess, with collecting it into a into a trade in a in a nice package of a full story. You know, it was about that part of the, the the thinking of how you would write is that you would you would kind of plan an arc and and how much of a, how much of a role of the trade market was was important to the the way that you were you know working um it was um you know i that that was always a thought everyone's always like okay you got to write in story arcs and you know there was a lot of like rules that had previously existed and then at the yeah, that was a weird decade of 
things changing like well you don't have to do a trade it's better to do the floppies and then oh no you have to have it ready for trade oh but a trade paperback has to be six issues or you can maybe get away with four um i and we were just always told different things and it's like well i don't know you're supposed to put out trade paperback collections this is what we're doing (laughs) um but they never really sold that fantastically well um the the audience was really more buying the comics every month. I mean that's where we moved, you know, a hundred thousand units or ninety thousand units, uh, and and uh, the trade paperback pre-orders would come in for you know a couple thousand. So okay. um, the audience that wanted it was pretty much getting it immediately. They weren't waiting. So I think kind of like the way it would work is I knew generally what the plot for the arc was going to be. Sometimes you would know what the next plot's going to be after that, and you want to build towards that too. But also, you know, you would have these little subplots that take off, and you kind of want to leave some freedom to let the characters do their thing. Sometimes the characters take over the script themselves. And then then you might decide, you know what? Okay, we're going to build out that that arc. You know, that we're going to actually run off with that subplot, because that's interesting. The, what I'll kind of obsess over, though, is like, I have to bring it all back to like so every little thing has to come back to like some bigger story that all ties together um so i think we did a good job with that seeding like the little clone kids that led up to serpentor and um just um the whole backstory with alexander mccullen and um i loved the i loved writing on the dreadnoughts uh characters um you know but other than that just try to keep it fun and keep the I think the pace itself was not... A, I didn't even have to try to move that fast, move that along uh, to counter that whole uh, decompressed uh, trend of the era because there were so many characters. You know, you're just... Man, everyone's everyone's vying for screen time. <laughs> and then you've got message boards where no matter what you do, half the people think you're a god and half the people think you're the worst <laughs> thing. They think you're the most worst thing to ever happen to the brand and it changes every day and... And then, uh, you know, they, uh, so it's like, you can either do no wrong or you're total loser piece of shit. (laughs) And then, and, uh, then, um, it was a, man, it was a serious initiation there. Like to be the first real big professional comic to work on, to deal with the the audience, you know, that was very, very passionate. And and do you have to deal with something with a fan following like that? Mm. It sets it up so that like that you're never surprised by that again. So, a lot of people will spend years writing their own stuff, and then they get a hold of a large brand, and they're kind of like taken aback by all the 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 craziness of the fandom. And and uh, you know, I guess we got thrown in cold water early on for that. Yeah, um, I mean, you did um, Devil's Due did something very well, which was creating an online presence and a forum which uh, you know back in the days when this was a very new thing to to do and um, i forgot yeah we had our own message board didn't we (laughs) yeah and there was an incredible amount of engagement there and i think you know building up the community particularly with gi joe being away for so long you know reminding people of you know talking to each other about the you know old stories and you know whooping up a bit of, of of enthusiasm and and sort of that community meaning there's then a this great anticipation for for the book each month as it's as it's coming out uh but then as as you as a creator of this thing means that you've got uh you know a real microscope where you can see 
exactly real-time reaction as it's coming in oh um, yeah. I, yeah and i guess you must must have build up pretty quickly some uh coping mechanisms to develop some hard skin for <laughs> you know the uh the opinions coming through because people aren't going to hold back are they yeah um oh it, that was that was nuts and then um i think uh yeah i i just um i don't remember exactly when i just probably a combination of all those reasons why i finally just kind of got off the book for a while and then um came back to write issues every now and then um i had a blast well, then you started the transformers continuity yeah the, the i had a GI blast versus doing transformers that. yeah um how did that come about well um so like right after us um dreamwave came in to hasbro and snatched up the transformers license um they had hired pat lee at wizard to do a, a pinup and then um you know, I just sunk everything I had and it was just going by the, you know, skin of my teeth to get G.I. Joe out there. So, um, but they got Transformers after the retailers learned like, oh man, we don't want to sleep on this. We don't want to miss out on this like we did G.I. Joe. And Transformers was always a bigger brand. I mean, just always dollar wise and fan base wise, it was a, a bigger global brand. So that book just like, just crushed it. I mean, and then, uh, so both series were out and I just, there was this guy, uh, Adam that worked at Dreamwave. He ended up working for us later. Um, he, I just said, I, I approached them. I said, we're doing, um, I said, let's do a crossover, man. Let's do like the old Marvel crossover. I mean, I really want to do that. And I said, how about we'll do our own crossover called GI Joe versus Transformers. And you guys can do one called Transformers versus GI Joe We'll both do our own thing. We both each keep the money for our own books. And that way we can go to Hasbro together and say, hey, we want to do this. We're both cool with it. Can you guys let it, will you guys allow this? Um, so that's what they did. And, and uh, Hasbro wrote, we made a whole separate license just for that series. And uh, my idea was um, I wanted to do basically Cobra Fine's the transformers on the arc before they wake up and Cobra introduces themselves to the world by attacking with all these like super high-tech transforming machines uh which were basically famous the transformer characters as like Cobra vehicles um and then gi joe is formed to stop them so uh then dreamwave did like a period piece world war ii way more like kind of surreal style and they had Jay Lee do the art. So I was like, perfect. These are so different than each other. You know, like that's, I wanted my to be very intentionally like popcorn movie fun. And they ever did a more serious kind of artsy thing. And, uh, Art House. then, then Dreamway, that's when Dreamway went bankrupt after like issue one or two came out. And then I don't remember how that series got wrapped up, but, um, yeah, that was a blast, man. We did six issues. The book sold phenomenally well. We did a huge omnibus collection hardcover for it. And yeah, it was just six issues of... Uh... Actually, I think some of those elements were taken... Were There's some scenes in there that I'm like, from that first Michael Bay movie, you're like, man, this looks like it was right from the comic. <laughs> um, especially when Starship... Well, there's a came. lot in Rise of Cobra from Reinstated, we noted. A lot of, a oh, lot of yeah. things that you created in that early run that, that showed up in the in the 2009 movie. Oh yeah, I'll take all the credit for that as long as you don't blame me for the movie. <laughs> take credit for the good, but not the the blame for the bad. Let's use the nanomites to destroy the Eiffel Tower. 
<laughs> um, oh yeah, and and honestly, man, even like it's so funny of all the characters to like say like, hey, that's my design. Because with Snake Eyes, I didn't really do much to Snake Eyes, but I did tweak some things. And the things I tweaked, they used, like, the little wrist gauntlet that looks like a Batman utility belt capsule thing on his one arm. And the Arashikage mm-hmm. symbol on his shoulder. Like, that just had never been a thing before. And, and literally kind of like copying the David Michael Beck, you know. Yeah, we noted that too. Like, I'm, you know, they, they literally said this, do this, <laughs> do this. <laughs> to the... Yeah. To the to the photographer um and uh man we i don't know we were treated like so terribly by them like that's when we lost the license it was like there was so much weird political stuff it's a whole other podcast of like from everything i've <laughs> learned through you know like it's almost like a documentary detective like piecemeal <laughs> thing I mean, you hear stuff from different people it and like it sounds like this whole thing would make a good book oh yeah basically I can't prove this, but from what I've been told, so uh, is the head licensing guy at Hasbro wanted to buy Dreamwave, and they were going to make Dreamwave the be-all, end-all of everything creative at Hasbro. Um, they were going to develop all do all the artwork in house and develop new intellectual properties, and and they would publish all the comics, and and that deal apparently was literally like down to the point of like there was contracts written up, and. Um, and then what they didn't, and they had always just had a problem with us because they didn't, they hated how we were doing GI Joe, because they didn't understand GI Joe, and we would, and then when I sold like a hundred, and then we had to be, I think we sold a hundred and fifty thousand copies by the time we did all our reprints of the first issue of Joe, and they're like, yeah, well, why isn't it two <laughs> fifty? And and um, like so we were always kind of treated like these kids that didn't know what we were doing, and when it came. And then Dreamwave was just like beloved because Transformers sold more and they didn't have a problem when robots killed robots. And then I found out, oh, they were they were going to buy Dreamwave and cons- make them part of the whole Hasbro team. And this guy in licensing was probably going to cash out with a huge, you know, check a bonus or something. And um, and then they went bankrupt and they turns out, you know, the, they, you know, they were not run as much like a company as we were and. So everybody thought we were going to get the Transformers license. It just, that's what everyone, so they're like, well, of course it's going to be Devil's Due. And um, they gave it to IDW, which was super weird at the time. You know, IDW just published horror books. And Hasbro was so against anything that wasn't, like, kid-friendly. It was so weird when they gave it to IDW. I That's not even, like, saying, like, they had to give it to Devil's Deal. Like, why didn't they give it to Dynamite? Why didn't they give it to, you know, any of the other companies that were submitting to them? And, uh, so that was, that was odd. And it's like, what I learned was, oh, that deal for Dreamwave wasn't, there's no way to put that together without sabotaging any goodwill about Devil's Due internally at Hasbro. That guy had to be planting, you know, seeds that we were incompetent and stuff all, you know, to get that deal done. And when it came time for the movie license to happen, they started grilling us about like, are do we know how to handle like, oh guys, thanks. This has been cute. This little book you've been doing for seven years, but now we're going into the big leagues, guys. Now we've got a movie coming out, and this movie's going to be the biggest thing ever. And are you guys capable of handling that kind of distribution? That's the kind of shit that they would say to us. And meanwhile, we had renewed these licenses over and over again and sold. I I paid them over a million dollars in royalties, mm. and. 
we had the Family Guy license. We were like in Blockbuster Video and Borders and Barnes and Noble and uh, Hot Topic and I mean, we were at, at, we we had all of the the top other Hasbro properties and and all kinds of other brands and doing stuff with movie companies and everything else. And they just this weird weird like insinuations started coming from them to us. It was so bizarre. We did this kind of humiliating dog and pony show of like trying to defend why we should keep the license. I'm still mad at myself. I ever even allowed myself to go there. I should have just told him, you know, I, I would handle it a completely different way now. And I'm pretty sure I would have kept the license. Um, but, um, that's kind of weird how it ended with them. Like, and, and it got really, really hard. It got so hard to work on the books at that by that time with approvals and stuff because it was so you couldn't do it like they, all of a sudden there was like 50 new eyeballs looking at every single thing that came through for approval and they wouldn't let you do anything because um, they were terrified of you know that it wasn't gonna be perfect and it was gonna mess up the movie launch so it was like everybody was so like over working on it like, we were just all exhausted and spent and like we couldn't handle dealing with all the bureaucracy anymore and so everyone just kind of I think we were relieved when it was finally you know gone and then you know a year later, I wish we had it back because it was a lot of money. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that book didn't make a lot of money for many years. I mean, IDW has put out a lot of G.I. Joe books that have sold 5,000, 6,000 copies. Mm. Um, and and I don't know how much money they had to eat to do that, you know. So uh, it's it seems like it's really uh, finally ticked up now. The book Larry's been doing has been doing, you know, really solid and... and uh, now I think for the first time, uh, I think Hasbro is actually the way they're doing the Snake Eyes movie now is how I told them they should have done it 15 years ago. I mean, this is do the origin story, start it, build it up like this. I mean, they're basically I won't know until I see the movie, but it sounds like they're pretty much just doing a slightly tweaked version of of our Snake Eyes miniseries, our Snake Eyes Declassified series, which is obviously us just building upon Larry's story and putting more of the dots together and clarifying things a little more but um i'm excited i've never been more excited i i've been as a fan who just got to like be a part of this property for a decade of my life um i look back on as the fan and say i just wish they would get the brand the shit together with the brand like it is it's they've got one more shot they've done two shitty movies (laughs) they got one more (laughs) shot to get it right oh come on now and if they do, I was like, they either need to do like a, a video game, like an incredible video game that like really brings them back into the public consciousness of like younger people. The same way that Deadpool was and Deathstroke the Terminator was. Those both got hype in video games and Harley Quinn got a lot of hype in video games. And those all played a part in bringing those brands to like the next level. Do that with G.I. Joe or possibly you know i don't know like they have some movie that's done right or some big thing that's done right otherwise it's going to go the way of buck rogers where you know what finally the existing fan base is too old to get any new people in and it's too much of an old concept and then you know then would you like i'd say buck rogers because like when i'm like 20 years old i look back at old buck rogers art i think i think that's that stuff looks awesome you know and i might i buy a poster like a forbidden planet poster or something to hang on my wall but that brand that those toys aren't coming back you know um oh we don't know if you're gonna drift into the uh the toy market i saw back to the future action figures the other day yeah well 
I think we, they're we could saving. get Buck Rogers. <laughs> but there's yeah. a, but there's a difference between the like nostalgia yeah. action figures and like a mass market thing like Hasbro buying and pushing Power Rangers toys. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think I think they're doing it. I think Hasbro is saving GI Joe. I think the Snake Eyes movie is going to be huge. I think the the toys like you already can't get them every time they put them out on the shelves. They're gone. They'll mm-hmm. probably they you know they put Snake Eyes in Fortnite. Um, they're gonna. They it seems like they're really intelligently introducing, um, you know, some of the most core characters, and they're gonna unveil, like you know, this is what you're supposed to do when you have this world. You're introducing a new fan base to. Is you're supposed to like have some character who you get to learn about the mystery, the you know, the veils lifted, and you learn about a whole other world you didn't know existed. Like it's typical Joseph Campbell stuff, you know, hero's journey. It's snake eyes is going to learn that this thing called cobra exists and there's a whole effort to stop them and and it's going to introduce us to the gi joe team and i hope i really hope they blow his face off you know and (laughs) stay loyal to it and then and then that there is like i really hope they establish some kind of gi joe guy later like i hope there's that moment where like hawk and stalker somebody go find henry golding with his blown off face living in the mountains somewhere <laughs> and they're like we gotta we gotta uh we need are you a guys. werewolf <laughs> I, I can i can imagine the the discussions amongst a couple producers and writers where it's like well henry golding's really handsome popular and expensive for a second movie or a third movie it's like okay well we all right, so we'll blow his face off at the end of the second movie. Yeah. But he's going to be like shirtless and like maskless for most of the second movie. You know, it's like how do how do they sort of like hang on as long as they can before he can't speak and he's just always wearing a mask? If not, man, Ryan Reynolds will be there like, "Hey, I'll do it." That is an amazing comparison with Deadpool because you have these like rules in movies with hiring actors or keeping a brand going or like having something that's PG-13 but not R or R but not PG-13 and then five or ten years pass and like the rules get rewritten. Like like Deadpool is a great example. It's like, oh, people aren't going to see this or like, well, the actor's not going to want to keep their mask on because they want their face to be seen. It's like, no, everyone just loves Deadpool. Yeah. It just, they, I just love everything about the development of that film and how like, he leaked it and just basically forced Fox to make it. <laughs> It's wonderful, you know. And I, I think um, I know this is going to be like the most controversial opinion on Snake Eyes, but I really think they, it, from what I've seen, it looks like they made really smart decisions on how to keep it feeling like GI Joe, but to distance a little bit from the purely military aspect of it and mm-hmm. purely U.S. military empire, you know, elements of it. I think, you know, it'll be a little bit more of like in the way that. The Dreadnoughts are not, you know, military, but they're a real force and a threat, a real threat. You know, some of the the G.I. Joe element could also be written the same way where you still keep the same core important parts of who those characters are, you know, just like. um, So uh, if Henry Golding is, you know, maybe I guess, you know, he's clearly British in this, um, so he's not going to be an American. But the important part of the story is that he's. Uh, I I think they probably should have kept him in the military. I don't I don't know what if I don't know what the backstory is going to be there yet, but you know the important part is he's an outsider 
and that Storm Shadow is part of this clan and that he saves Tommy's life and that he's brought in and you know that's that's the important part as long as he's not he just can't be another Japanese guy you know <laughs> um, so they'll probably you know they'll probably throw in some characters they're probably going to make the Joes be from different parts of the world because I just know how insanely worried about that they were on the other movies they were really really worried about we can't have the real American heroes it's just not going to play in any other country we can't do this it won't work it's got to be more of a global force and uh, I don't see how they would have gotten over those worries still I'm sure Hasbro's still probably going to be pushing to do that but meanwhile they put out the Captain America movies and they all kicked ass and they did it in a really smart way and the whole world liked them so <laughs> um uh, yeah, do it good. You know, that's all we ask. Just, just, yeah. just follow the comics. We're going to like, like it. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, imagine that. Larry never wrote. Never. Larry never wrote the U.S. government as like a benevolent, perfect entity. It's like yeah, not they really. The, there were the jugglers, and there were the, the there was the corruption, and then the, but, I mean, he's done interviews about that where he talks about you know, you know, you see the the absolute worst in humanity in 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 war, and then you see like the most heroic, amazing things you can imagine. So, um, that's, uh, yeah. So, I mean, no, I'm, I'm excited, man. I'm, I'm hyped. Actually, I'm going to go see Black Widow today and I keep saying Snake Eyes because I keep saying it's like that's more <laughs> on my mind. When I saw Black Widow last week, there was a trailer for Snake Eyes. And for a moment I was like, I'm having you finally the best got of to both see worlds. It. Yeah. It looks like a G.I. Joe movie anyway. <laughs> um, it's so funny too, because you're seeing Black Widow, you're seeing Scarlett Johansson, and then you see the trailer with Scarlett. With that actress with red hair, and you're like, wait, what? Scarlet, yeah. Um, I wondered if I could um touch on a point um you mentioned a little while while ago about um Hasbro and the relationship there, and I had I think three questions which maybe you can can cover off. Um, uh, the first one was, you know, you had the license for a fair amount of time. Was was it generally a little bit fractious, or was there peaks and troughs where maybe someone came in who got it, um? before you know being swapped out for for another job um the second question was kind of like the talk about the licensing approval kind of thing you know typically how long would that take and you know how difficult did it get in terms of approving things you know things being rejected or did you just get to a point where you just preempted everything and, and tried you know didn't get the nose because you knew what those would uh be and the, and the third question was um, how long did you kind of have the uh, license contract at a time? So, so was it like a twelve months that kept on getting uh, renewed? Yeah, sure. Um, so I had, um, yeah, the, uh, the 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 approvals were the licenses. There was always there's always like a little bit of a you know a stress to any license because um, it's there's always a little bit of good faith you're putting in there. Uh, especially with a corporate large corporation, you know, you, you typical licenses are three years. I think the Transformers one might have been shorter because that was just that was like a one-off project. But so every like every three years, you know, you're going to have to renew that. And now the the etiquette in the licensing business world is, hey, as long as everyone is doing well, um, you have some loyalty and you keep working with those companies you you, you build good relationships with your licensees because you want them to come back and keep licensing other stuff and then 
every now and then it gets you know competitive uh and it's you're always worried like eh, this is a mega corporation are they going to get greedy and just kiss cast us aside um usually what happens is you kind of milk the property and the sales wane off enough that the licensee just doesn't want to renew and then it goes away for a while and someone else mm-hmm. picks it up with because the relationship was always so tumultuous with hasbro from day one and they always were like like sometimes like viscerally upset at the books we would submit because they didn't like their own characters um <laughs> it, it, it was always weird you know it always felt very stressful and nerve-wracking that um and then when dreamwave came along and i like they just and, and when idw got transformers they would heap praise upon them like they would so that was always like really awkward so we we're always afraid and running the company i'm just always afraid every day i was like oh, I should, you know appreciate this while it lasts but we renewed it i think I renewed it multiple times. We had, I had different licenses with them, and then we, you know, we had the spinoff projects like Transformers, and then the um, approvals. Uh, approvals would typically what licensing companies are used to doing is they'll do up to ten days for an approval because like you're working on a T-shirt or a statue or something, and then you know they get around to it and they get around to it. And when you're doing comics, you're doing like a fast-paced. This is serialized periodical entertainment, and you, we're on a we're we're like running a television show here. This is on a schedule. It's got to come out next week, that that kind of thing. And Hasbro is was not they're not the best, and they weren't the worst. But it was it was definitely a, always. I mean, you pretty much had to have a part time person whose job it was just to keep up with approvals and and chasing approvals and every editor's job was to besides editing and making a comic they had to chase over approvals and our editors used to keep these big like graph those graph paper books like just to Mm -hmm. have a easy way to make a spreadsheet by hand and just keep notes of like all these different approvals to keep straight in their head and um we would fax them over you know because they, or they would fax them back. We'd scan the art and then email it, and they'd send us like fax machine approvals back sometimes. So yeah, you. But they got we got down to where you know you you expect you'd have to give them a week. You had to build in an extra week for things and just keep your fingers crossed that they weren't going to have a big revision. But what you do is you get you get the licensor to commit different different stages. So you submit the plot, and they say yes to the plot. Then you can do the script, and that way. They can change the script, but they can't. If they want to change a big element of the plot in that script right. after you've done the work, you can say, "Hey, hey, hey, guys, you signed off on this," and then you get the pencils approved, then you get the colors approved, and then you get the, you know, lettering. Once once you get past the the line art, you pretty much go straight to colors and letters and assemble it all and send it off for one final approval. Um, so that that's 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 uh, that was just part of the gig, man. That's every single book, every single product you put out, you know, with a license has to do that. I look back on that and then I'm extra proud of like how great we were putting books out on time. Um, and Hasbro also picked up on, on what, what you were doing in terms of influencing their own output, right? Cause they, they put out Kamakura toys and they put out a spirit based on your redesign and uh, probably various other things that I'm, Oh, yeah, that's right. I never got that spirit. I forgot they did that. Um, that's the thing where it's weird. You know, you never hear anything like that's where the you would think the relationship would be such that they're like sending you free stuff and they they're cooperating with you. But when there's a dysfunctional like 
breaks in an organization at a certain size, they, you know, it's like there might be a toy designer working on something who loves the comics, but like his boss is like ambivalent, and then like the licensing person doesn't even know they're working on the toy or understand why you would care because they <laughs> don't even care about these comics or yeah. toys. They just want to go home. So it's just weird, you know. Yeah, they used um. Zanya was the only one that really didn't get any. Zanya never had the toy made because they had that weird belief that girl action figures don't sell, which has finally been disproven now. Um, but Kamakura, man, I never expected him. I think he's been like twelve different toys or something like that. He's been in the anime. He was in the Sigma Six anime. Uh, he was in yeah. Spy Troop series. Um, he was like one of the major characters in those computer-generated uh, CGI um, G.I. Joe movies that they did, direct-to-DVD. So I, I'm sitting and here Hansburg like, hey. never said, hey, man, thanks. <laughs> no, but uh, I, I will. I mean, and I don't... I'm only finally just now speaking out more publicly about some of these old stories because I think the people that would be offended are long gone. I, I mean, I, I'm sitting here like, even if they don't acknowledge me at all for like... Right now, I'm Larry is getting his getting his like day in the sun like they mm. put out the featurette with him they are hailing there are all the marketing is actually pushing this more as a comic book movie than anything else and, and uh it's it's uh, it's fantastic like i i mean larry's gonna be in the movie it, it's like this is this is what you're supposed to do so um if they roll around though and like snake eyes is a billion dollar movie or something and kamakura shows up uh they sure as hell be better be giving me a shout <laughs> um well i think idw is is losing money by not you know reprinting uh the devil's do stuff they Recently, did they, 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 call it, it once, they call it disavowed then, yeah it's in print no it is available it's in print is it now what about yeah. the first volume uh hold on i can or, or like because when wait, I tried to find it, all I could find was the one that reprinted America's Elite. I couldn't find wait, the wait, one. Wait, wait, I did. Have you ever? You did ask about any other license or coming in in between, which never happened. But I don't know if you ever heard the story where I turned down Marvel for an X Men crossover. I did hear this. This is good. We did talk about this. <laughs> I, I just. Well, now you would understand the dynamic in Hasbro was such that like, yeah. I, I found oh out after gosh, the fact. Yeah. I found out that they tried to take it to Marvel and DC, and, Mar- and you know they were probably cocky about what it was worth. And Marvel was like, nobody wants this shit, and you know, which is which is which is why I got it because no one else knew what to do with it, and and uh, that that was the only time where I was worried there might be a sniper come in and and try to take it. Um, I'm on the Diamond site and disavowed four, five, six, seven, and uh, five of the six America's Elite disavows are in print so oh cool jay makes jay makes a point you can't get volume one unless your store your local shop is still sitting on a copy they can't order one but uh most of it's available i did pitch a story to them after all these years to idw i said i finally have a story i, I really this is before i knew what the snake eyes movie was going to be all about too i was like i really feel like I didn't tell them this, but I really feel like I had a good way to update G.I. Joe in a way that would work for them. Uh, once again, update it in a way that would work for today without without like s- spoiling the old story. It would have, but the only way it would work was that it has to take place in the Devil's Due, like an alternate, like a alternate universe, which is just still the Devil's Due G.I. Joe universe, and um, and it the, the center of the plot is around Lady J, so that 
that was what I thought. If fans heard that, mm-hmm. and I was that I was writing it, Devil's Due is going to do something with Lady J. They'd be like, "What?" And I think that book would sell. You know, you know um, what? There's there's an important anniversary coming up fairly soon, the 40th anniversary, and hopefully IDW will be doing some special product projects to to market and. What a great, what a great idea, you know, 40, 40th anniversary of G.I. Joe, you know, 20, 20 years on from, from Devil's Due, coming back with a special, you know, continuing, continuing on the Devil's Due chronology with, with some, you know, one-off uh, special. That would be, that would be, you know, I think a wonderful project. I think the only way it's going to happen is if the fans start like clamoring for it and start asking for it because and and being vocal about it because that you know there this isn't me being weird and making up some weird conspiracy like it was just the policy when when they took over the license hasbro there was some top-down order that you know don't ever mention devil's due Uh, um the um this, this is like a race we're we're promoting this movie where you just mentioned that there was a marvel comic series and then there was a cartoon, and now it's a movie. You never like these Devils Do comics never existed. That that was like the Hasbro, like that. You, I mean, if you go back, Google any press release that came out from you know any formal PR about that first movie, you'll never find a single mention of us unless the journalists decided to bring it up themselves. And uh, and it was just so bizarre how they wanted to just like a like they were embarrassed of our our run or something it was it was really strange and you know uh it has to do with this whole weird backstory thing where this dude wanted to buy dreamwave and and like you know what the guy got fired like a month after we lost the license so um it, it just gets into the i mean it, it is in itself of itself it's like its own weird like novel about corporate drama um so um and and stuff some of this stuff i didn't learn until years later you know uh but now i would think i mean for god's sakes it's been 13 years since we touched the book you know um and devil's due is such a tiny publisher now i just basically put out a handful of books of my own stuff and we have the trailer park boys license now which is the first license in a decade and i i really just have no interest in building up this mega company with it i i'm working on some other things uh so I, there's no reason why IDW should be like afraid that like a Devil's Due book would look good. Um, anyone in Hasbro that would have been weird about it back in the day probably doesn't work there anymore. And I would think a lot of people maybe who were like 15 years old when they were reading it are like 30 now and you know work there and have a, a, fish in, a, a appreciation for it. But thanks to guys like you and um, the Longbox Crusade and other other GI Joe. Um, collector communities i'm starting to see it now i'm getting people asking me about the devil's due books there it's there's you know podcasts covering it and there's you know i it's i'm like okay the the nostalgia for the devil's due stuff is coming back there's a lot of people who are you know from early 30s on down who didn't even know we ever did these books and they're just now finding them and and this is the first time i'm reading it yeah, and part of that is no accident that like there was a very conscious effort not to mention our stuff in any PR. <laughs> to a lot of people, the IDW books were the first Joe books since the '80s. So, um, can, can I go back to 2008 for a second? 
because there's a there's a short window, a surprisingly short window between the final Devil's Due G.I. Joe book and the first IDW one. Can you talk about um, like was your next uh, license like re-up not renewed? Did they kill the deal early? Did you sort of opt out? Uh, we knew like I'm super fuzzy on exact timelines, but we were we were like we knew like well in advance like when I with, with kind of the patronizing like hey are you guys you know professional enough to handle this movie distribution you know. Uh, so we knew we were going to have to, for the first time ever, defend ourselves on why we should be allowed to keep the license. And then and it, it, and it was weird because, you know, IDW had basically, they had money from 30 days a night being such a success. And they had a big, they could cut a nice check to Hasbro. So they got the transformers license. Then they got investors from uh, uh, another company, which to this day is part of the whole big giant IDW conglomerate. And so they had, serious deep pockets to throw at Hasbro. So I'm pretty sure that was as simple as that. <laughs> um, but we knew, we, we knew like, okay, yeah, bad news guys. Sorry. You're not going to get the license. IDW is going to get it. So, you know, you have, you have until contractually, you have up until this date to wrap up the story. So we were like, we're going to go out with the biggest, best, best fucking GI Joe story ever. World war three and involve everybody we possibly can give it the end and we're going to end it with killing off Cobra commander the end. So, which is the only thing that wouldn't let us do for whatever reason, <laughs> even though these comics are going to be wiped from the face of the earth, uh, and never mentioned again, we weren't allowed to kill off the main bad guy. <laughs> so he ends up sitting in an underwater prison, you know, but like, um, and then IDW turns around and shoots him in the face. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, that, that was really, that was really salt. What'd you think there. about that? You were like, Wow. I forgot about that. I remember, I just know that one of the first things I saw, I didn't, I honestly, I've never, I think I've read like two or three IDW Joe comics ever. And I mean, I, I'm not emotionally connected to that stuff at all, uh, especially now, but the one thing that we were, we were all the whole, everyone, anyone that ever worked for us was like, what the F is this? Like the first issue, like Jinx was a stripper. And I mean, you got to understand how, how, angrily like we were like scolded in the past for any kind of innuendo about certain things or like um you know all these concerns about violence and and like you know being worried the moms were gonna picket the offices of hasbro with signs like i mean and then like the for the guys that get the license from us just get to immediately you know do all kinds of crazy shit that we would have done too (laughs) so yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I forgot they immediately just like shoot him. Hey, you're welcome for that. So, um <laughs> but I don't know, man. It's like it's so weird now. I mean, I wouldn't mind being in a nice little position where Snake Eyes is no matter what, that Snake Eyes movie doing well will help it, it help me and anyone that worked on those books because they, hey, that just that does mean, you know, more invites to conventions. Uh they yeah. start to all of a sudden like putting like a GI Joe snake eyes reference in the credits for the guest list now means something again, mm-hmm. um, uh, to the, to like the younger, the, not just like the old heads that like that come in. Um, so that, that I hope, I hope whether they never even talk to me ever again, I hope that it does well. And then just as a fan, I'm going to actually really enjoy that movie. 
Um, but I mean, I bought GI Joe toys for the first time in years with these new, like incredible figures they've been putting out with the the class of the classified series. Yeah. I got my pimped out Destro sitting here. It's incredible. <laughs> oh, a lot of Josh. people say it's the best one. I mean, sorry, people. Profit Director Destro. Yeah. One person says it's the best one. Two people. Two people. Who's the other one? <laughs> My brother. Oh, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> My brother and Josh. <laughs> I've actually, uh, I've got to get, I'm getting, I got to get going here. I've just realized it's uh, been two and a half hours. It has, <laughs> it has. You've been it worked. very generous with your time. And, uh, Good job, you guys. Letting you run away Tim with makes it. makes people chatty. <laughs> okay, can I do a quick fire? Quick fire. Two, couple of quick, quick questions. Sure. Uh, on uh, one of the Cobra bases, there was like an office base in Detroit, uh, and there was a billboard at the top of the office that oh, said yeah. trash. Does that mean something? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it says <laughs> a billboard, bill, big billboard on the top of a Cobra base in Detroit with the word trash. We thought it might like mean I'm, something. but I'm here to disappoint. club or something? Maybe not. Um, I, no, I have no idea. Okay, uh, the word... Maybe, maybe Bando's who we need to ask. <laughs> maybe. The word Renegar appears a couple of times as a as the name of a, a Renegar <laughs> limited edition cover by Michael Turner and also as a general, General Renegar in, I think, Geo Joe versus Transformers. Does that name or word mean something? That is uh, based on Michael Renegar, who is the VP of Palisades Toys, um, he was one of the biggest G.I. Joe fans on the planet, and he, by sheer force of will, got them the license to all the G.I. Joe statues, and <laughs> they made weapons mm, and nice. stuff, too, and the nice. incredible, they made incredible stuff. So, yeah, that that's him. And he did a, he commissioned his own variant cover one time. Aha. Uh-huh, oh, my right, gosh. Okay. So, he, he commissioned You know I met that guy? And that's why. No, I, yeah, I told you the story about the, the San Diego, like, getting there with the promo book, and we got this tiny little booth. He walks up to us says hi and goes you know you fuck up storm shadow i'll kill you <laughs> <laughs> he's all tennessee like thick thick like tennessee accent and uh it was um so then we were friends ever since <laughs> awesome Brilliant. so um yeah thank you so much for being uh, so generous with your time intentional or otherwise um, it's been uh, great to, to you know hear all of these these stories, uh, you know, a real peek into to some of you know some of the things that were happening in the in the background while while we're just sort of seeing the the output in terms of the the comics them themselves. We're in our read through end of your era of of being the lead writer, you know, end of issue twenty five, uh, but we've got a lot of quality output from Devil's Due still to to read on and discuss in detail on our, our podcast. So maybe uh, we, we can um, dip back in the, in the future and, and discuss um, a little bit more of that, that later era, perhaps. You've been generous with your time. So, so please uh, use this as, as a platform to quickly promote your latest endeavors where, you know, where can people find out more about what you're working on right now at the, at the moment? Yeah, I'm uh so devils uh, has all my, most of my stuff there. I'm doing a, uh, a, um, I actually have uh, so any there, there are millions of people around the uh, world that are Trailer Park Boys TV show fans. We're the official licensed publisher of a really fun anthology series. Literally, the book comes out next week. Um, uh, all comedy stuff, um, but uh, 
that we're going to be releasing those comics. I got um, three of my own series right now on Mercy Sparks, which is actually in development as a film at MGM right now. If you like supernatural action with a little snarky humor in it. Um, and then, um, and who doesn't the, uh, the, uh, and then I'm two of my like big passion projects that I'm just putting out just cause I have to, uh, I can't <laughs> not tell these stories for fun is one is called the encoded and it's, um, takes place in the year 2055. And the other is called arc world. And it takes place, uh, back and forth between the present, the stone age and 13,000 years ago in the age of Atlantis, uh, dealing with, uh, an alternate history to earth where we were more advanced than we were claimed to have been. And we got wiped out and I'm implying there's no reason that these books can't actually be interconnected. Um, uh, even though that hasn't really been explored yet in the stories and, but they both have like the encoded has, uh, a generous amount of, interesting like military characters and ninja type of characters and giant robots and a mix of very realistic grounded future theory and fun giant giant excuses to fight uh giant robots and excuses for things to punch each other and the um man i'm not doing a good job (laughs) pitching these (laughs) The encoded as an interesting thing, basically artificial intelligence uh, um, hits like the singularity and there's like a super powerful AI that we, we actually succeed in bringing down. But then we the problem and it wasn't even trying to hurt us, though. We created our own problem. We leave all these robots all over the planet that now have to def- like survive and defend themselves. And uh, it's like... Um, kind of an exploration of how crazy the future is about to get with how rapidly things are going to accelerate in technology. Um, and then, you know, there's ninjas and robots beating each other up. And the best way of tracking down uh, and getting, you know, dipping your toe in and, and reading these, these stories, is it, you know, what's the best route for that? Everything's at devilsdo.net or you can go to uh, encodedcomic.com to check out the encoded and go to uh, archaeopunk. A-R-C-H-E-O punk.com to check out the Arc World series, which is basically about a semi-retired rag like task force of former military agents from around the world who've been brought together by a by a friend to try to stop the oncoming apocalypse that's gonna wipe out civilization on the planet. Very good. So they both kind of have semi-G.I. Joe vibes in sometimes, so people might want to check it out. Some stuff. Yeah, please do. Sounds cool. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing, Josh. This has been great. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. We really appreciate you coming on. We've uh, we've enjoyed looking at the series and been kind of rough on you at times, but uh, we've definitely <laughs> given you props, I think, throughout also for, for a lot of the good things you did, a lot of the pacing and a lot of your uh, action choreography has been really enjoyable to, to, to get into, and it's just fun seeing somebody do a different take on the, on the series. So we really appreciate it. Okay, that's great. So uh, thank you again to Josh for your time. And next time here, you can come back and listen to us talking about more disavowed stuff as we continue to cover the Devil's Due era. Next up, we will be moving on to Frontline. So uh, back with Larry Hammer 
on a, on an arc over in the Devil's G world. And on the uh, regular ARAR continuity, we will continue to cover the latest issues as they come out. And we're also releasing the bonuses like the sketchbook special shows. And we've got some exciting guests lined up for that in the future as well. Um, Jay, where can people go if they want to find out more about you? Check me out on Facebook, uh, breakroomsketches.com. Working on a commission right now, so haven't been doing too many breakroom sketches, but they should be popping back up here and there. Commission, fancy. Um, fancy, very fancy. Fancy, fancy. Some might say supreme. <laughs> Don't give too much <laughs> away there. Try not to. Tim, where can people find more about you and your interest in the world of G.I. Joe? My website is a realamericanbook.com. Very good. And yeah, great uh, three-part write-up of your interview with uh, David Anthony Craft now complete. Um, didn't know anything about this guy or his work before, but but yeah, really, uh, really interesting chat that you had with him. Thanks. Um, you can find out more about uh, this show in the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has links to those places. There is a Facebook page with all sorts of interesting discussion and posts. There is Twitter, there is Instagram, and there is uh, a contact us form if you want to get in touch and say hello. Uh, we're also on Patreon, so there's a big thanks out there to backers Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, and Justin, who are getting access to episodes early as well as exclusive content and their contributions are much appreciated to help pay for our subscription fees so i think that is us done and when all is said and done you can catch us down the road because we've been talking joe and we're all out of joe's or josh's <laughs> he's out of us that was a long one laters <laughs>